something been curious about this broadcast. This is Moscow. This is Moscow calling. On the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alexeyevich. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. No, no, damn. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. All Moscow is waiting to give a hero's welcome to the world's first spaceman, Major Gagarin of the Soviet Air Force. And to begin the bulletin, here's a Moscow recording of his voice speaking to Russian scientists as he went through space. Major Gagarin was sent up in his four-and-a-half-ton spaceship from somewhere in the Soviet Union, soon after seven o'clock this morning, our time. And about 148 minutes later, he was brought down again after his 25,000-mile-an-hour flight around the Earth at heights ranging between 105 and 181 miles. As he looked down on the Earth from the loneliness of space, he streaked across Asia, Africa, and South America, constantly checking his instruments and controlling the pitch and roll of the ship by firing small correcting rockets. During his flight, his reactions were checked by radio and television devices. When he got down, Major Gagarin said in a message to Mr. Khrushchev, the landing was normal, I feel well, I have no injuries or bruises. When he was told the momentous news in Ottawa, Mr. McMillan said, It's a very notable achievement. I'm sending a message of congratulation to Mr. Khrushchev. The Prime Minister is now flying home after his three-week tour of the West Indies, the United States and Canada. President Kennedy, too, has sent congratulations to the Soviet Union. In New York, all-night radios broadcast the news in special news flashes, and the New York Times carried in its last editions a treble headline. Soviet launches a man into orbit, maintains radio contact with him, first human in space feels well. The director of the National Space Agency, Mr. James Webb, called the flight a splendid achievement, adding that he hoped the Russians would make available to scientists the information they gained from the experiment. Hello everybody and welcome to this special edition of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Special because we're joining with people all over the world to take part in a global space party called Yuri's Night. At the front of the show you heard an extract from a BBC Home Service news bulletin from April the 12th, 1961, marking the historic moment when Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. Since 2001, the space community have got together on or around April the 12th and raise a glass to Yuri Gagarin in events that span right across all seven continents and even on the International Space Station. Not only is it Yuri's flight that we are celebrating, but human achievements in space. And one of the biggest of these was the launch of the most complex space vehicle ever constructed, the Space Shuttle. And on April the 12th, exactly 20 years after Yuri's launch, STS-1, the Columbia, launched into the skies. As we record this episode, there are over 153 events in 41 countries taking part. And as always, TGP Nominal's Yuri's Night podcast is registered as an official virtual event. So if you're joining us from the Yuri's Night website, a very warm welcome to you all. And I hope that you'll come back and join us in the future. 
Normally at this point, I turn up the fader and introduce my regular co-host, John Berger. Happy Year's Night, John. Hello, matey. I'm not really British for anybody who's listening for the first time. (laughs) Now, you have literally just returned from Boston. What's been going on? I am burned out, (laughs) to be quite honest. Four days of PAX East, which is one of the biggest video gaming and board gaming conventions in the U.S. I know you've got some stuff for us, some content that you're going to bring into a future show. I've Uh, got so much material to go with. (laughs) That's going to be so cool. My, My interviewing jacket went on, which I never really thought to do. It's your fault, you know. Usually is. No, it is completely your fault. I was getting everything ready, and I wasn't even thinking of bring, bringing my, my Zoom recorder with me. And all of a sudden, you're like, are you going to bring your equipment up to do any interviews? Well, I guess I can. Or was it, what was my response? I guess I could haul it up there because, you know, it's so such a huge piece of equipment. <laughs> Once I decided that, yeah, it, it's time to finally crack that thing out and start talking to people, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And and yes, to anyone who understands that I'm stuttering, I'm trying to gather my thoughts, I'm exhausted. It's four days, you're on your feet just about constantly. So many video games, so many board games, It's it is a holiday for me but it is by no means relaxing and of course it's a seven to eight hour drive Uh, i am just beat right now so it was thursday friday saturday sunday it's it's now four days instead of three which means i'm now 33 percent more exhausted than i would have been in previous years and there was a guy there who was um offering a book i was like oh what's this all about and this guy wrote a prequel to this video game, which I thought, well, that's interesting. And the game's not even out yet, because the video game is one of those dystopian, something happened to the Earth, and, and bad things are happening. And now a very bad AI has decided to make his presence known. So your whole thing is to go in and, I'm assuming, take care of it. And they brought this guy in to do a prequel book. I was like, wow, that, that, that's different. And he only wanted 10 bucks for it. And you know, I was intrigued enough by the world, and what I saw I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy this. Why not? I want to read a bit more into it. So the video game itself is called Scraper, which is based on the skyscrapers that you see in the opening segment of the game, which really is amazing, because the first two or three minutes, all you do is you're a soldier, you sit in this dropship. And you're looking around New Austin, which would be Austin, Texas, and there's just these skyscrapers, neon lit and and so forth, all over the place. And it's amazing to just sit there and look around at the world that's there. So the AI is called Cypher. So the book is called Scraper, The Rise of Cypher. And the author is actually a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, His name is Ryder Windham. He's written something like 50 Star Wars books. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, this, Like I said, New York Times bestseller. He and I were chatting for like a half an hour about how the book came to be and all of that. And there's also something even bigger, well, personally for me, that we'll talk about when we actually record it. But I'm going to get a very unique view of a book that he pretty much completed but wasn't able to publish and it's regarding a video game franchise that i absolutely adore and all of a sudden he submitted it and he got the word back saying yeah we actually don't have rights to publish this so he said he's got the document somewhere he'll find it for me and he'll email it to me to read that's the kind of stuff that was going on and that, that's when i decided okay i gotta break out the recorder and he and i talked again the next day i actually talked a little bit with one of the tech leads for scraper 
Then all of a sudden he's like, uh, I asked a question and he's like, let me bring this guy over here. He's the CEO of the company. <laughs> so here I was talking with one of the lead developers plus the CEO of the company. And then Ryder Wyndham came over and I was having a conversation with all three of them. Wow. It was amazing. Absolutely <laughs> flipping amazing. One guy, um, really, really cool, really brightly lit and, and action-oriented platforming game where the scene will flip directions and, and very futuristic sci-fi backgrounds going on in the back. Very, very colorful. Really good game. Lots of people were giving lots of praise while he and I were talking. Yeah, the guy's a banker. This was the first video game he decided to make on his own and taught it all himself. And it was it was fantastic. And he even said that he's looking forward to going back to listening to our podcast. It's because as soon as I mentioned Richard Garrett, he was like, oh, Lord British. That was really cool. And that, that's the one where I pulled out the recorder and he and I were chatting. And after that, I started talking with a whole bunch of other developers about their games. And like I said, it's all your fault because you made me bring the recorder up. <laughs> That's going to be a really cool show. We're going to have a lot to talk about on that one. There's a lot of walking. There's a lot of stuff to do, a lot of stuff to see. It is not a relaxing four days, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you're saying with that, because uh, when we went to Star Wars Celebration, uh, which was over three days, I couldn't get the time for the three days, and I only had one day. And to try and cram as much as you could into one day was a bit manic. <laughs> mm-hmm. I go every year. I've only missed one year in the past eight or nine mm-hmm. and boy was that a mistake <laughs> I, i'm not well we, we just bought this house so i figured i'm gonna be responsible you know i'm gonna be the responsible person i'm not gonna spend several hundred dollars on packs we just bought the house blah 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 but then they also stream a lot of the conferences and so forth on twitch so i was watching those which was just making it worse because so i was like i could have been there so this is when it was still friday saturday and sunday by saturday afternoon my wife came up to me and said, John, you are miserable. I don't care what our financial situation is. You just go to PAX every year from now on, okay? <laughs> so, like, I'm going to say no to that. <laughs> I was I was miserable. It's so much fun to be there. And now my daughter, she's, she's graduating from high school this year. She is pumped because I would never bring the kids with me simply because it happens during the school year. And I'm the kind of parent where I will not take kids out of school if it's something that's not educational related. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my wife and I have always been that way. But she graduates from high school this year, so she can go with me next year. And she is pumped. She can't wait. As it's our Euros Night episode, I thought I would also bring in, as a kind of co-host, our resident astronomer, Ross Hockham. Happy Euros Night, Ross. Happy Euros Night. So this is your first Euros Night, isn't it? It is, yeah. I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> <laughs> Not until I spoke to you. And now you've managed to rope me into actually doing a stargazing night for Euros Night as well. So what's happening with that? We were trying to do like a party, weren't we? We were trying to have a disco or something or a space disco and make it a bit crazy. But we didn't really have enough time, did we, to get all the things in motions that we needed. So hopefully next year it will get bigger. So this time what I've done is I've put a, uh, a pole in the local area of Buckinghamshire, which is where we're based, isn't it, in Aylesbury and that sort of area, yeah. onto our Facebook group and said to people, right, whoever votes the most, we will come to you with all our telescopes for a free stargazing night, you know, in celebration of first man in space so that you get to look up. I know he was kind of uh, looking down rather than looking up, but it's all part of it, isn't it? It's about getting people out and talking to them and 
making them aware of what's going on up there. Because what we were trying to do was find something that was connected to Yuri Gagarin that people can actually look at through a telescope. And uh, we thought, well, maybe there's somewhere on the moon. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, Yuri there Gagarin. is. But unfortunately, it's on the other side. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so we, we were looking it up, weren't we? Yeah. We're having a little chat and looking it up. And yeah, so you can see it's a crater, isn't it? Yeah. Yuri Gagarin crater. Yeah. But it's, it's on the far side. So uh, we've managed to get some pictures of it. I got, I got in touch with uh, Noah Petro, who's at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and he's um, involved with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and he actually sent me through a couple of pictures of what the, the Yuri's crater looks like. And uh, so I can put a couple of pictures of that up in the show notes so that people can see it. Yeah, send it to me as well. I can, I can stick it on our website. Yeah. So yeah. people can actually, you know, you you won't be able to see it. Well, actually, the kids might do. They might, you know, because we're talking about they might co- they're going back to the moon, aren't they? So yeah. hopefully, you never know, some of the kids that listen to your show may end up being an astronaut that actually goes up. They're actually talking about putting a floating outpost in the orbit around the, um, the far side of the moon so there's a good possibility that oh, people will be able to see it they've got to do that in my lifetime come on because I'll be able to see it with a telescope <laughs> be something else I can see things flying around the earth and then there'll be that but like the moon has almost like a little moon <laughs> flying around it that's got to be done that's it I'm writing to NASA now or the ESA <laughs> <laughs> now I think we'll have a, a short break there and we'll talk a little bit more about Yuri's Night and its influences when we come back <laughs> about the ISS in 15 countries made a success took a lot of space flights for us to build a station as big as a football field two Johns on board but they got no bath orbits the earth in an hour and a half over 200 miles up off the ground Tipping them scales at a million pounds Making benefits for humanity Through new science and technology Over 200 people have lived on board The heroes of Earth who were driven to explore Space, that is, off the Earth, for the Earth On the journey to Mars Ryan Kobrick, Assistant Professor of Spaceflight Operations at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. I'm also the Chairman and President of Yuri's Night, the World Space Party. I believe that we should all think globally and act locally. That's why in addition to my Yuri's Night role, I also contribute to creating local events in my community. Last week, my students created an event on campus called Yuri's Fortnite, where teams competed by building space station-inspired cardboard forts. This week, I'm connecting with friends in Nepal for a 100-person teleconference about exploration. I'll be hosting an event at Tomoka Brewing Company Thursday night on the actual anniversary of Yuri's flight. And on Friday, I'll be celebrating under Space Shuttle Atlantis, helping coordinate the volunteers and introducing astronaut and KSC Center Director Bob Cabana. 2018 has been an exciting year. 
and I hope that everyone has or has had or will one day have amazing Yuri's Night parties. Rock the planet. This is TGP Nominal. This year at Yuri's Night, there's there's also been a virtual Yuri's Night challenge where people have been encouraged to read space-related sci-fi novels or non-fiction books on or shortly after Yuri's birthday, which was the 9th of March, and finish the book by Yuri's Night itself. There was even a Yuri's Night challenge Facebook group that was set up so that readers can talk about what they're reading and what they would recommend other people read. That's pretty cool. Yeah, nothing wrong with getting people to read. I mean, yeah, sci-fi novels are fantastic, but reading the non-fictional stuff, the proper science yeah. space stuff, that's just awesome. Sci-fi is kind of sci-true in a way, science truth as I call it, because they do some of the ideas they had have actually become a reality. Yeah. So it's almost like sci-fi is almost like theoretical, isn't it? It's people thinking about what could happen and where humans could be or where are they going or what's on worlds or what's out there. So you can't actually, you, you read something about, you know, maybe there's massive insects that speak and that and can fly around in space. And we laugh at that. But theoretically, there could be. There could be anything out there. Yeah. So to read sci-fi, it gets your, not only your creativity sort of going in your mind, but also... You know, it kind of inspires you to think more and look out and go, oh, I wonder if that's true. Let's look it up and find out how things evolve on other planets. Yeah, definitely. And they go hand in hand. So to get more people read, I mean, I cheat. I don't actually read. <laughs> I listen to audio books. So <laughs> I could I could listen to it probably if it was about 15 hours, 20 hours for an audio book. So I could listen to one. I'd have to challenge and listen to one every day until. <laughs> but yeah, there's some great stuff out there to read, especially the science facts. Great. Thinking on, on on the challenge and everything like that, I, I realised that Yuri Gagarin and Yuri's Night are immersed in popular culture. And I thought that I would bring your attention to a couple of examples of this. Now, believe it or not, Yuri has a connection with William Shakespeare. What? <laughs> really? Yeah. And I didn't Russian know, and English. <laughs> I didn't know about this until a few years ago. I visited Stratford upon Avon, which is the birthplace of William Shakespeare. Yeah. And uh, one of the attractions at Stratford is the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. And on the side of the theatre is a, a gift stroke bookshop, which well, you, obviously you're going to get those on, on places like that. It's a must. Yeah, so nothing unusual about that at all. But <laughs> on the bookshelves, along with the literature about Shakespeare, was something that really caught my eye. And it's not the first time a book has caught my eye, but we won't go into that. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I saw was a book that looked like it had a spaceman floating in space on the cover. So it's I, a, bit, a bit odd for... For, for Shakespeare, something yeah. set in those days, yeah. So I, I picked up this book, and on closer inspection, I realised that the face of the spaceman was Yuri Gagarin. So I thought, well, that can't be right. Why would Yuri be, Yuri Gagarin be on the cover of a Royal Shakespeare Company book? Um, <laughs> the, the book was called Little Eagles, and and this is what it actually said on the back of the cover. 
50 years after Yuri Gagarin's first orbit around the Earth, Little Eagles tells a fascinating and little-known story of Sergei Korolev, chief designer and unsung hero of the Soviet space program. Under Korolev's leadership, the Little Eagles of the USSR beat the Americans in the early stages of the space race, achieving a series of firsts, including the first human in space. Rona Monroe's gripping play illuminates the life and work of a brilliant engineer who struggled to meet the military demands of his ruthless political masters whilst devoting as much time as he possibly could to his real passion, exploring outer space. At the time, I didn't know that the Royal Shakespeare Company put on anything other than Shakespeare productions, let alone something about the space race. Yeah. So here is Rona Monroe talking about what inspired her to write the play. I'm Rhoda Monroe and I wrote Little Eagles. I was asked by the RSC, they were looking for contemporary history plays. The first idea that came into my head was something to do with the space race. It was an actual part of my own life. This point of human history that we'd all thought was going to be our future, we all thought we were going to be living in the stars and that space was where we were all going, had to become history. And it's something that, you know, nobody did anymore and no one even could do anymore. My idea was to write about the Apollo moon missions because that's what I was really aware of. But then at some point in that process, I thought, I should just check up on what the um, Soviets were up to. And at that point, I discovered this whole other slew of stories that were just as incredible and just as amazing. But I didn't know them. And it's partly, I think, because at the time, nobody knew because the Iron Curtain was up. And then when the Iron Curtain came down, space was already history, so nobody cared. So that was kind of where all my focus went. Um, and in fact, Little Eagles is the story of the Soviet um, push into space. The reason why it was a compelling story is because it was supposed to be our future and it's become our history. This is such a huge dream and it's become a dream that no one can afford. But if you look at the amount of resources that both uh, America and the Soviet Union threw at that dream and what they achieved, you think if we had a dream that big, if our dream was, for instance, you know, to abolish world hunger or to cure cancer, whatever, if we chucked that kind of energy at it, clearly we could do it because it was impossible to go into space. But what you needed was a dream that was large enough to mobilise two huge nations to make it possible, and it, it became possible. Even with all the kind of Cold War connotations, all the military applications that were attached to the space programme, and all the kind of propaganda and bluster that was attached to it, and all the human cost of it, even set against all that, you just go, a dream that big is inspirational, and why aren't we dreaming that big? What happened to our dreams in my lifetime, really? The protagonist or the, or the character that the play is really built around is this guy called Karelyov, who was the designer of the Soviet space program. It's this extraordinary thing where you have one guy whose dream it is and who has masterminded the, the whole effort. Building a play around real historical people is such a double-edged sword when you're actually talking about recent history and people, some of whom are still alive, you have to kind of deal with this terrible kind of guilt and terror that you're getting it horribly wrong. I had to kind of take the Shakespearean decision if at the end of the day this has to be a dramatic character that works as a dramatic character and trust the audiences are intelligent enough 
to enjoy the drama and appreciate where the drama might be overlaid on a much more complicated reality. Well, it's interesting. I was um, we, for writer and rehearsals of piece and new work. I think the process is for me is always the same, which is because in a sense no one's tried these lines before I think the rehearsal process is about testing them with something like Shakespeare you know it works loads and loads of people have made it work it's been around for hundreds of years and these are the lines are the lines for a reason and they work so therefore you just work out how to make them work for you with a piece of new writing one's job as a writer in rehearsal is to be there to explain how the line should work, could work, or what you were hoping for, what your intention was, so that people can attempt that. And then if it doesn't work, you know you need to change the line. The whole process of seeing stuff come off the page and actors kind of take possession of it is the best bit of the process for me. It's an epic historical drama. It's a tragedy. It's a big play. With this cast and with this degree of sort of energy and commitment, I think it's going to be a big, meaty, satisfying night out. Uh, I had to go and buy the book. I, I, was, I was, <laughs> had to. And, uh, it had a spaceman on it. <laughs> she calls him Koreliov. Um, I've always grown up knowing him as Korolev, um, and yeah. I've heard Russians calling him Korolev, so um, I didn't know which way to take that, so I'm still going to call him Korolev. <laughs> well, if Wiki- granted Wikipedia is not the end-all, be-all of such things, but it looks like... Either would be correct. <laughs> um, his story is really emotional and sad. You know, he spent a lot of his life in the in the gulag in Siberia and um, treated very badly there. Eventually he was released because the Russian authorities had heard that the Americans were going to try and launch some stuff into space and they wanted to get there first and they thought, oh, yeah, Sergei's the guy we need to... Uh, to get this to work um yeah we're going to release you from siberia come and work for us <laughs> really didn't have a lot of say in the matter to be honest so they bang him up yep treat him terribly and then go ah actually you're one of the greatest minds would you care to you know come and help us <laughs> <laughs> i think i'd know what i'd say yeah you wouldn't but last without, five without seconds that, it wouldn't happen, would it so <laughs> that that's it <laughs> korilov will always be an inspiration for me as I say, his story is incredibly emotional, mainly because he didn't get any recognition for the work he put into the Soviet space program until he actually died. They kept him a secret. They just called him the chief designer. Uh, the reason for this was that they were worried that if the world knew who he was, then the West would try and get him to defect and he would end up working for NASA, just like Von Braun did that would have changed the game completely for the space yes, program. Yes, it definitely would have. Yeah, there's quite a lot of that happened, didn't it? Like yeah. with the war, a lot of people ended up going over and we used we used their, the world's greatest minds. See, working together. That's mm. exactly what she was saying, wasn't it, in her, in her talk just then, in her interview. If we all work together as a human race, we can go to the moon again. We can go to anywhere yeah. in space. If you put your mind to it, there's, there's nothing. You just need to work together to help each other. Exactly. So basically, we wouldn't be celebrating this event. We wouldn't be celebrating Yuri's night without Sergei Kurilov. So whilst you're there raising a glass for Yuri, spare a thought for Sergei. Little Eagles was written as part of a trilogy of plays, and the second play was called The Astronaut's Chair. 
the astronauts chair is set around the amazing women of the Mercury 13 missions uh, I have to say and I have to <laughs> be very honest here and humble that I'm an astronomer. I know what's up in the sky, but my knowledge of rockets and astronauts and things like that is, is <laughs> it's not great. Well, so that's why I'm here, though, to learn from you. A lot of people don't know about Mercury 13, to be honest. They, they know of Mercury 7. You've probably heard of the Mercury 7, which was the, the first team of astronauts that they sent up into to space. There were seven original astronauts or yep. the, the guys with the right stuff, as they called them. Yep, the um, right stuff. <laughs> they, they tend to call them crazy, don't they? Uh, well, <laughs> all, all of these guys were test pilots, so they used to be being flown in things that have never been tried before, and there's a possibility <laughs> that it's going to crash. So <laughs> the Mercury 13 was a team of 13 women that were trained to do exactly the same job as the Mercury 7. They were going to send a team of women astronauts into space in the 1960s. Unfortunately, it never happened. But the stories of these women are just as fascinating as their male counterparts. Well, you know, considering the amount of women who are also behind the various space programs as engineers and, and so forth, is that really surprising? Not really. Not really. Not at all. And the fact that we're only recently coming to hear about a lot of these people, mm -hmm. you know, like Katherine Johnson and so forth, I mean, that, that's kind of a testament to how much, let's face it, sexism there was back then. Yeah. You know, it's just ridiculous that women could be there to, to be designing heat shields and be designing the algorithms needed to properly come back in through the atmosphere and so forth. So there's no doubt that there were women out there who wanted to be astronauts as well. Unfortunately, it took until Sally Ride, really, for that to happen for us. Mm -hmm. But as I say, yeah, in the 1960s, there was 13 women that actually took on exactly the same training process and selection process as the Mercury 7. But until, oh, it's been... 20 years ago I guess that it really came out about these women it's a sad case of affairs but uh, times change don't they well, fortunately for the better in this case, at least I hope. If it, if it hasn't changed a lot, at least we're making steps. But in the right direction the women involved are the stories behind them are just just amazing and one of my favourites of the Mercury 13 she's an amazing woman she's got so much passion about space her name is Wally Funk great uh, name isn't it love it <laughs> and uh, yeah she's done documentaries for the BBC uh, look them up um, she did a the main one I can remember was called Women with the Right Stuff <laughs> and it's a brilliant documentary. Uh, it's still available if you look for it. Yeah, so this book, this play, is based around two women at that time, and it's called The Astronaut's Chair because there's this rocket which only has one chair at the top, and these women are fighting pretty much to try and get that seat. They want that seat. I had no idea any of this is out there. <laughs> it's like there's actual plays about astronauts and... yeah rocket designers yeah and it's uh, with shakespeare yeah written <laughs> written for the royal shakespeare company yeah i do not know that we do now <laughs> now we're gonna have to go out and find them i have to nick that book off you i <laughs> see <laughs> i'm lying i'll be i'll be looking it up on audible <laughs> listening to it on my journeys space is everywhere it ties in everything no matter where you go you can find something or someone that ends up tying it together yeah love it absolutely uh, 
Now, did you know that Yuri's Night has inspired a Disney TV show? Oh? Sasha Palladino created Miles from Tomorrowland, which is an animated space adventure series taking place in the year 2501. Is it to do with a film? Tomorrowland is an area in Disneyland. Yeah. And so it's so like that a future sort fu- of land. Future land, if you like, yeah. Um, and that's what it's based around. It centres around the Callisto family, which consists of Miles, his big sister Loretta, and their scientist parents, Phoebe and Leo, who live on a spaceship called the Stellosphere and work for the Tomorrowland Transit Authority. Now, a whole plethora of people from the sci-fi and science world have made cameos on this show, including Mark Hamill, Jonathan Frakes... George Takei, mm. Will Wheaton, LeVar Burton, Whoopi Goldberg, and Bill Nye. And uh, for our English folks out there, not the actor. We're talking Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, for him to actually take part in this show, which is aimed at young children, yep. getting them at a young age in, involved in science. He actually plays a professor in the, in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of an absent-minded professor type guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's amazing that he's you know getting involved in this kind of thing. Yuri's Night co-founder and motivational speaker Loretta Hildalgo Whitesides inspired Sasha Palladino with her vision of how colonists through the galaxy should connect together one day a year to reflect on human achievements in space. Because of this, he named one of the characters in the show after her, Loretta Callisto. And not only that, he wrote a special episode based around Yuri's Night. Here's a short extract from the introduction of the episode. It really does bring home the spirit of Yuri's Night. Yuri's Night! Hey, Stella, are we there yet? Not yet, Miles. I think someone's excited about their first Yuri's Night. Oh, who can blame him? It's the greatest holiday in the universe. You're gonna love it, Miles. The party on the Tethescape is so Yuri. So Yuri? What's that mean? Yuri Gagarin was the first human in space. So when we say something is Yuri, it means it's incredible, unexpected, and very special. Just like Yuri himself. That's why every April 12th, the day Yuri launched, there are parties all over the galaxy. Attention, Callistos. Now approaching the Tethescape. Blastastic! We're here! What should we do first? Ride the gyro ricochet rockets? Join the alien dance party? As long as you're done before the quantum fireworks show, they blast at the exact moment that Yuri went into space. Attention, Callistos. Incoming call from the Tomorrowland Transit Authority. Ah, oh, craters. They can't send us on a mission now. Can they? We can't miss Yuri's night. Sorry, kids, but you know our missions always come first. And as soon as we're done, we'll get back to the party. Promise. Callistos reporting for duty. <laughs> Happy Yuri's night! <laughs> Happy Yuri's night to you too. Wow, you you don't get much more disnified than that. It sounds crazy. Well, I didn't want to play too much of that because I didn't want to spoil the whole plot of the episode. But if you do want to go out there and, and watch it, wherever you get your Disney shows from, it's in season one and it's episode seventeen. It brings different elements of science and space to the younger audience, and that's what we want to do. We want to try and inspire the next generation. That's what it's all about. I think it's time for a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about a big event that is taking place in London later this month. 
Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their... My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. ...has dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. We look back at the Earth and watch it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here if you're interested, over. Go ahead, Houston. An Irishman has won the World Porridge Eating Championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th bowl. Roger. Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Go Houston, you're go for landing, over. I got it then, go for landing. Roger, 1202, we copy it. We're go, same time, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Magnificent ventilation. The next generation of explorers should not ever give up. Hello, everyone. This is Steph Evs of the YouTube channel, The Stimulus. One of the main reasons I started my channel was in the hopes of inspiring young people to pursue their interest in science, technology, engineering, and math careers, or STEM careers. And events like Yuri's Night are very important in achieving the same goal. In this case, promoting an interest in space exploration. Yuri's Night is a celebration of the achievements of the past that will likely inspire the heroes of the future that will lead us out into the solar system. And that's why Yuri's Night helps rock the planet. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of TGP Nominal on its infinite mission to explore space, science, and technology news. To explore the world of sci-fi, comic-cons, and gaming. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. A couple of months ago, I noticed a vague post on Tim Peake's Twitter feed that got my spacey senses tingling. It was a retweet from the European Space Agency that read, Interesting things afoot. Hashtag space rocks. And underneath, Tim Peake wrote, Whatever it is, I'm in. (laughs) It looked like some kind of festival, so I decided to contact the press office at the European Space Agency to find out more about the event. A few weeks later... Out of the blue, I was contacted by the public relations team behind Space Rocks asking for more information about the podcast and what capacity we would like to get involved. And after a bit of correspondence, a Skype chat was set up by one of the organisers of the event, 
So, with me on the line, I have Alexander Milas. Now, Alexander, you are involved with a, a very special event that's coming up soon, aren't you? Well, you're, you're, you're very kind. Yes, I, I am indeed. It's uh, it's called Space Rocks. Uh, and, uh, in fact, it's not just an event. It's also uh, something of a bridge. It's, it's a unique collaboration between uh, my little company and uh, a, a slightly larger organization, the, uh, the European Space Agency. How did you actually get involved with the European Space Agency? Yeah, well, uh, well, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a, a sort of a twisty, turny kind of story. Back in the day, uh, I was a music journalist after being an archaeologist for some time. And uh, I ended up being the editor-in-chief of a heavy metal magazine called uh, Metal Hammer. And, uh, well, I did that for about 10 years. And over the course of doing that, we had an annual award show. And uh, it just kind of like uh, awarded the, the great and good of the heavy metal community. And, uh, well, I, I created a little award because I thought it was good not just to recognize musicians, but also people who we felt embodied the spirit of the music. Uh, you know, we called it the Spirit of Hammer Award. And uh, so to my delight, as a huge fan of base exploration and science in general, you know, I discovered that, uh, uh, well, a project scientist on a little mission that we know and love called Rosetta was also a gigantic metalhead. So we actually invited Matt Taylor to come and accept the Spirit of Hammer Award and follow in the footsteps of other people like Sir Christopher Lee and Brian blessed and uh, and we thought it would be cool to make it kind of special so we uh, we got in touch with one of his fellow Imperial College alumni uh, Dr. Brian May um, who also plays in Queen and uh, he came down and delivered the most knockout speech about what Matt does about why space exploration is important why Rosetta was just a staggering technical achievement and uh, well he just absolutely brought the house down and uh, uh, that, that's how the seed got planted but but what really happened was after that Matt and I well we became friends and uh, one night we're talking um, beer may have been involved <laughs> and uh, I, I think we might have started getting a little emotional because we're talking about the Philly lander and just uh, I, I we might have been guilty of humanizing it slightly probably more uh, my my fault than his and um, I was just uh, saying to him, and he was saying to me, just it was just kind of sad that this little robot was going to basically run out of juice and then kind of float in space for like a billion years or something. And so we thought, well, maybe we could do like a going away party, you know, not, not just for the robot, but also a bit of a round of applause for the uh, huge amount of uh, uh, scientists and collaborators that made that absolutely mind-blowing project possible. And, uh, well, you know, I started saying, well, maybe we could get some bands to play. And, and one thing led to another, and and uh, Matt introduced me to a guy called Mark McCorkman, who is the uh, senior science advisor at the European Space Agency and a humongous music and uh, prog music fan. And, uh, well, you know, uh, I, you know, things began to develop. We began to see if we could actually make this thing a reality, you know, just like a combination of passion and also just like a a real sense of desire and hunger for an event like this, something that's accessible, something that's family-friendly, something that celebrates not just space exploration, but also the culture that it expires. And so the only question that remained was, well, well what do we call it? And, uh, well, uh, we, we, we got to thank uh, astronaut Tim Peake and a magnificent person over at ESA called Carl Walker, uh, who collaborated on a, a thing called, uh, uh, well, the Space Rocks campaign, where uh, basically during the Principia mission, uh, Tim Peake was actually tweeting playlists uh, from orbit, and, uh, well, the hashtag was Space Rocks, and, uh, well, there you have it. Well, if I remember rightly, um, he was tweeting out lyrics from tunes, and you had to try and guess what the tune was. Exactly. And then like a, there know. was a prize of a, a mission patch, I believe. 
Yes, and uh, yeah, the, I, I guess you could say the possibly the the world's first orbital pub quiz, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, which was uh, you know, uh, you know, pretty cool, but I, I think emblematic of just the uh, uh, the spirit of collaboration and openness and fun that I think ESA wants to foster, and uh, so it's not just the, the the name that it's responsible for. I think it's the vibe as well that it's also responsible for. You know, we we, we want space rocks to be fun, and we want it to be a community, and uh, and it feels like. That's 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 what we're uh, entering up towards now. It's really surprising how many people in the music industry are. I don't want to call them nerds, um, <laughs> but um, space geeks. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You know, I mean, you know, I, I sometimes term it like space fever. You know, uh, from time to time, I will actually mention what I'm working on to to people, and they go, "Oh, wow." I got to know everything. It's what Matt Taylor actually in an interview that we put up on the Space Rock site. Uh, I said very eloquently, uh, you know, you know, because I was asking why. Why do you think space exploration is important? And he said, well, you know, it, it's kind of fundamental to the human identity. You know, for for as long as we've existed and called ourselves human or regarded as ourselves as sentient beings, you know, maybe we stared out from the cave and wondered what was over the next hill. And space is figuratively the next hill for us all. And so it, it, it's not just about wanting to know what's out there. It's about who we are and what we are that makes all of this so interesting and 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 I, I think that's why space rocks you know has so much potential because I think it speaks to kind of a universal curiosity and uh, it certainly exists in the world of art and culture and music and it expresses itself in all kinds of ways and in concept albums and films and books and we want to bring that all under one roof now you, you mentioned Matt Taylor and Matt is for our podcast an absolute legend because not only has he been part of the uh, next generation shall we say of space scientists who've moved away from that image of the the shirt the tie the the pen protector and all that kind of stuff but he's he's made it more colorful and not only that, he's a member of the five hundred first. So uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Should we? Uh, we yeah, the the five hundred first garrison. And uh, and yeah, you're, you're you're absolutely right. But I, I think that's what's wonderful about Matt. You know, because you know, I, I mean, he he is uh, first and foremost a brilliant scientist, uh, but he's also a wonderful communicator. And I think he's also you know the the personification of what space exploration can be. It it is not about elitism. It's not about uh, the ivory tower. It's about sharing an excitement about the world around us. You know, and I think uh, the the fact that Matt also comes, you know, from what you could say are slightly humble beginnings is also really important as well. You know, I mean, uh, you know, he makes no bones about, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, he's an unlikely scientist. Uh, and I, I think that uh, what's great about him is he proves that that doesn't have to be unlikely. And uh, I think that's what's wonderful, because hopefully, uh, you know, with things like Space Rocks, kids are going to see that, too, and think about, well, how can I get into space or go and study it or just share my excitement about it? So what is actually happening at Space Rocks? It's a pilot event, you know, and so what we wanted to do was create something that was a bit varied and uh, sort of test the water, but also just uh, uh, give people a few options. And so we, we broke the day up into three different sessions, you know, um, that are all kind of unique. And uh, you can go to all three. Uh, you can certainly buy an individual ticket for any one that you'd wish to go to. Although um, the first one is sold out, and that's our Space Academy, which is a, a pretty great panel discussion hosted by Dallas Campbell. We've got uh, Maggie Lou there talking about dark matter, Beth Healy talking about uh, her incredible work in Antarctica on the Concordia mission, uh, just thinking about uh, what long-term space travel might do to the not just the human body, but also the human psyche, which is a huge, huge question. We have got uh, Tim Peake on the panel. Um, well, I, I think he requires no introduction, but we're, <laughs> we're pretty excited about that. 
uh, and of course, you know, we've, we've got uh, Matt Taylor. Um, session two is our science fiction versus space fact discussion. We haven't added all the names in just yet, but we have some pretty ex- exciting things in store. We've got Mark McCorkran, the uh, senior science advisor for the European Space Agency, and uh, we also have Alistair Reynolds, a former ESA scientist. He's also uh, well known for selling a, a rather a lot of books. And of course, the uh, the third session is uh, Space Rocks Live, and uh, I guess you could say the greatest uh, culmination of space and space culture and space exploration. We've got Charlotte Hatherley opening. Uh, she used to play guitar in Ash, but actually she's uh, much more busy these days doing soundtracks for the likes of Gavin Rothery, who was the co-creator of Moon. And if you're a fan of sci-fi films, then you'll know what a fantastic and visual and beautiful film-going experience that was. Yeah. Um, so they've collaborated. She's actually done a sci-fi set-in-space breakup record. And uh, actually her last video was directed by Gavin Rothery. And a subsequent one was actually actually uh, uh, using footage and projections supplied by ESA, which I think is pretty cool. The second band we got are Arcane Roots, who are space-obsessed, and, uh, well, if you haven't heard them, they make a kind of a synth-based, kind of a progressively-minded, cinematic, film-going, sci-fi kind of... I don't know what it is, you know, if it's rock, uh, if it's prog, it's just really, really interesting, and I think it kind of fits with the kind of expansive sounds that we often associate with spacescapes. And well, the final band is aptly titled Lonely Robot. Basically, the, the last two records by John Mitchell um, under the moniker of Lonely Robot have been all about a astronaut's mission in space. Uh, the most recent album is actually about the experience of an astronaut waking up from cryogenic freeze in deep space. And uh, uh, if you haven't checked out the, the Big Sleep, then it's well worth checking out. Awesome. Now, you mentioned there that the, the second part of the experience is all about science fact versus science fiction which fits in brilliantly with what we do because our tagline is your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction so everything that you are trying to project we completely embrace on the podcast and it's what we try and put out to our listeners anyway the reason why uh, well mark mccorkran came up with the idea and uh, you know I, I thought it was just fantastic to, to bring it into space rocks i think is because i think that we want to appeal um not just to people who could consider them like you know a space experts, but the kind of people who might go and see, say, a film like The Martian or Interstellar, and then just kind of crave the knowledge of what's actually possible. You know, uh, they, they might turn to Google, they might turn to mags or whatever else, and, uh, you know, kind of kind of want answers for things. And, and and I think that's what we're trying to do is kind of bridge the gap. You know, uh, it's not to say that there's no specialist knowledge there, but, you know, I, I think science fiction deals in the speculative. In fact, we actually interviewed Alistair Reynolds, and he said, science is under no obligation to be obvious. In fact, you know, films that kind of purport to be hugely credible are usually the least enjoyable for people like him because he's like, well, he crosses his arms and goes, okay, well, now impress me. It's always about a good and interesting story at the end of the day, but uh, I think that uh, what science fiction does frequently is also it opens people up to the world of possibility, and I think the natural consequence of that is to want to know what's actually possible. Is it something that you want to carry on over the years, or is this just a one-off? Oh, wow. Gosh, you know, uh, I, to be honest, I see the event in London as the, the very, very first step. You know, it, it's really just us kind of saying hello and uh, uh, asking, is there anybody out there <laughs> in keeping with the nature of it all? You know, uh, um, there's a huge amount of passion behind this all. And, uh, you know, what we really need is for the community out there to, to meet us halfway, to come out and support and also to let us know. You know, we, we have a newsletter. Um, you know, we're open source in terms of our culture or whatever else. And, you know, we want to hear everything, not not just the good, but also the 
the bad because uh, we kind of see this as a community. You know, it's it's not a product. It's, it's something that we all feel is important and it's special. It's a unique opportunity. And so if we're fortunate on the 22nd of April, um, then yes, we want to do more and not just in London. I mean, of course, ESA is a 22-member uh, space agency, um, 22 nation space agency, I should say. And uh, so it makes sense to us to embrace that. Uh, you know, it just so happens that we've begun in London, but that's uh, that's not where we're going to remain. And uh, it's not just an event. It's kind of like a experiment. We'll just have to see how we go. You'll know this. Um, you know, I've been very privileged to also interact with some magnificent space scientists. And, you know, there's, there's almost like this childlike glee when people are kind of sharing information. And I think that kind of extends to the kind of spirit of collaboration that makes things like Yuri's Night and Space Rocks possible. You know, I think there's an idealism that underpins all of this. You know, this idea that no matter who we are, where we're from, what we call ourselves, you know, we all share in this magnificent experience, you know, just like the some people, you know, might say that is a, the universe looking back on itself. You believe that we're really star matter. And I think that uh, as a consequence, it's just there's a lot of fun to be had out there. And, uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to sort of, uh, you know, not not inventing the wheel necessarily, but just kind of being a slightly different take on how you might do things and uh, and just kind of see if people like it. There's one thing we, are, we have, have the honor of doing on this show is actually talking to a lot of these scientists and um, it just brings it home, everything home to me and my uh, my co-host John Berger. For him, one of the, the people that we had a chance to speak with was Richard Garriott. Mm. And for John, that had meaning on multiple levels because he's a gamer. Very good. <laughs> so we had the chance to speak to Richard about his time up on the ISS and also because of the fact that he was Lord British to talk about the early days of gaming and stuff and it was a, an amazing interview and and that's what we've, we try to get out to people interview as many people involved in the space industry as possible and um, we, we didn't know where this podcast was going to go uh, we just thought it was just going to be the two of us just talking about space in general and it sure. just expanded so we, we talk about you know festivals comic cons gaming everything and space and science seem to just go hand in hand with the whole thing that's the reason why we did it doing the science fact and science fiction because the majority of the people within the space industry are pretty much into sci-fi and stuff it's probably <laughs> what inspired them to get into science in the first place sure you know when we get the opportunity to speak to people who are excited about space as much as we are oh it's such a magical feeling it really is um, oh, absolutely and that is why you know talking to someone like yourself is is important to us because you are kind of preaching from the same hymn book if you like yeah well i uh, well that's that's well, I, I feel very flattered, but if that's the case, I mean, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, for the record, yes, I'm a gigantic nerd. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, of course, I grew up with Star Trek. You're, you're right. I think the ultimate expression of intellect is a curiosity about the world around yourself and, yeah. and self-awareness. And, and uh, I think that's exactly why science fiction is so popular, because it speaks to the same intellectual curiosity that space exploration satisfies. You know, in many ways, it's like the ultimate pursuit. You know, the idea that, 
uh, there shouldn't be space exploration, you know, is almost to me, it almost contravenes what it is to be human um, in some way. And, and obviously, you know, there are all kinds of scientific pursuits that are absolutely necessary and fascinating and, and so on. But I just, I, there's just something so special about looking up and um, wondering what's out there. And well, he, he, he might hate me for kind of trying to interpret what uh, he's describing when he calls it cosmic vertigo. Um, but, but Mark McCorkran, um, you know, has a, a brilliant way of describing that sense of wonder and real vertigo when you suddenly kind of just sort of intellectually click and just realize, wow, you're, you're just beginning to grasp the vastness of it all. And, um, you know, that feeling is addicting, you know, and uh, I, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a rabbit hole. It has been for me for my entire life. And uh, I just want to share that, uh, that experience with, with everyone I know. It's the same with uh, the people behind Yuri's Night because Loretta Whiteside, who uh, came up with the concept, her idea was to have a day where everyone can celebrate achievements in human spaceflight. And that's not just on this planet. We're talking about into the future where people that were born on this planet but are now colonising other planets can reach out with the rest of us and celebrate this one moment in history when Yuri Gagarin did that momentous trip into orbit. You know, that achievement is something that is universal. I think it speaks to, to everybody, you know, and, uh, you know, I think it's the same feeling that people had when, when people walked on the moon for the first time, yeah. or, you know, orbited for the first time, whatever else. It's just like, wow, look at the heights that we're capable of. You know, it's just like we spend so much time focused on, you know, our, our shortcomings because the, the distress of the headlines that, you know, kind of surround us every day. You know, I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, and I'm speaking personally, of course, here, but I, I think what space exploration does is it elevates us, you know, um, it uh, it enhances the human spirit. I think it is something that uh, it just makes you feel good about what we can do and what we can achieve. And, and yeah, so the symbolism of, gosh, uh, an organism leaving its own environment, you know, on a cosmic scale, less than the equivalent of, uh, you know, a, a, a microbe spilling over the side of a Petri dish. But man, what an achievement for that microbe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just absolutely stunning when you really think about it. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's why I love stuff like that. And uh, that, that's why I just can't wait to get this thing out the doors, um, you know, because then we've got so much more that we want to try and do. This is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. Space Rocks comes at the right time because we are now moving forward and we need to let people know that we are moving forward. And I think with the last Falcon Heavy launch opened the door for so many people because people thought that space was dead. Uh, You know, when the space shuttle no longer was flying, uh, that was it. And now seeing that, uh, I think a a new generation of people have been inspired just by that moment. I think that what Elon Musk and SpaceX have done is, you know, they've, they've created a, a universal talking point. What is great about it, of course, is just the fact that uh, it just made everyone look up and go like, wow, you know, I mean, just talk about a, an image for the ages. I mean, that <laughs> a car in space. Yeah. What I would like to achieve with Space Rocks is just like, you know, a car in space is kind of, well, I mean, just like it, it does what it says on the tin, right? It's getting people to appreciate what an organization like ESA and other space agencies, they do every single 
single day, you know, yeah. um, landing a, a probe on a comet, you know, Matt, Matt talks about it like it's uh, landing a bullet on another bullet. I, th- I think the uh, the difference is uh, I think the comet's going about 15 times faster than a bullet goes. So slightly different. And, and that's the whole thing is it's all really down to communication and just kind of conveying things, you know, with the kind of simplicity um, that doesn't diminish like the, the, the scale of what's been done. And I think that's why they shot a car into space just because, well, that's easy to explain, you know, um, you know, the, the James Webb space telescope, slightly more complicated, you know, yeah. but, but I guess that's, <laughs> that's why things like space rocks exist as a bridge, you know, um, because, uh, it's not about elitism. It's not about hiding this information from the world. It's about saying, wow, look at what we can do. And I think you're right with, with the Rosetta mission, it was very personalized. That's the difference between a lot of the, the missions is a lot of the ESA missions are actually named after different things and given a proper name Mm. and that can be a curse in many respects sure but it did bring it home to a lot of people they did see rosetta and file as not just spacecraft they were almost like beings in in many respects and the funny thing is because of rosetta when the Cassini mission finished, mm. people thought about it in the same way. Mm. They were kind of sad that it was actually crashing into <laughs> into the planet. And yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's weird. I, I think we're just we're, we're destined to do that. You know, um, you know, it's just maybe it's just uh, an inevitability. You know, that that we kind of ascribe a kind of humanity to these objects out there. You know, but uh, I'm merely an observer. I mean, imagine being an engineer that spent 20 years on one of these missions. You know, I, I remember having a fascinating conversation with Matt talking about how actually the landing was a lot less stressful than waiting to see if it would wake up after 12 years of traveling. I was really fortunate. I was I was in invited to uh, kind of sit in the room over the last uh, ExoMars mission. You know, I, I can't imagine what it is to, to pour your life into something just uh, probably 24-7. And it's not just the, the, the time. It's the hope that you pour into it as well. And um, to see a mission succeed or fail has got to be a a, a, a sense of a achievement and heartbreak that, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for them. I, I just imagine what it must be like. And I, I just think I mean, what these people do is absolutely spectacular. I can't speak for space scientists. I'm not one of them. But, you know, just, just seeing it from the outside, I mean, I can't think of anything I've ever done that's taken 20 years. And it all hangs on just like a, a, a one or a zero is going to tell me whether it worked or it didn't. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty special, you know, to, to, to cope with that, I think also takes a really special person. And I think because of the distance between where we are in conjunction with where the actual spacecraft are, um, to be able to get that signal back to us, and in in some cases it's like 20 hours or so before you get the result back, Yeah, to them that must seem longer than it actually took to come up with the concept for the mission, get it launched, and then get it out there. That must seem like forever waiting oh, for yeah. that signal to come back. Yeah, no. you, you, you ever text somebody and wait for them to get back to you? I mean, it's just like you know the the, the scale of that. I mean, um, <laughs> is kind of unimaginable. You know, uh, like like I say, it, it, it I think it takes a really special kind of person to do that sort of thing. Definitely. And uh, you know, like I I, I think uh, pretty much everyone I've ever spoken with uh, been lucky enough to kind of chat with about this kind of thing. You know, they're they're always quick to say you know although you know single people can sometimes embody 
a, a mission or whatever else. You know, there there are just uh, vast teams. You know, that make it all possible. You know, and so there's a, there's a humility that goes with it as well. You know, particularly people who are the spokespeople for these sort of things, because of course one person didn't walk on the moon. A huge team of people made that possible. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing for Rosetta and everything else. And so uh, I mean, just uh, when you combine all of those people's work, all of that time, all of that hope, uh, you know, as irrational as hope may be. Gosh, I mean, that, that's just um, that's drama on a monumental scale. Um, but then again, <laughs> at heart, at my heart, I'm a writer, you know, so, so I, I would probably try and turn it into, you know, just a, a kind of like a cinematic experience where I, I think to most people, there's no good or bad news. There's, there's simply data. People don't see what's going on behind the doors. And I think this is where events like Space Rocks can bring that to the public actually be able to listen to these people that are involved with missions and finding out what it is like to be in that situation i hope it can achieve that you know i mean like i say the uh, the event on april 22nd is is the first step toward that and also to kind of not just celebrate you know just like the uh, the science you know the the achievement but also just like the culture that it inspires as well i mean that, that's a really huge part of what we're doing you know because i think that music i think that film you know literature they're the they're, they're the portals they're the gateways into this and uh, you know i i, I think a, a really fantastic book i read uh, called moon dust which is uh, basically a about, uh, you know, just uh, people involved with the Apollo program, you know, kind of wrote about, you know, just the, the fact that uh, you, you tend to have uh, a lot of people on the outside, journalists, writers, and so on, trying to kind of like interpret what missions are like, you know, just like what space exploration is like. The fact is filmmakers and musicians have been doing that for a really long time. And uh, what, what they create, I think, is is unique. I mean, just like that's the world of imagination, you know, rooted, you know, in, in this very kind of uniquely human pursuit. And, uh, you know, that, that's why we've got the music there as well and so you know i really hope people come down to see that and and also kind of just go like wow you know there, there are people making some really cool things out there um i mean you, you've really got to check out charlotte hadley's video for uh, a sign gavin rothery directed masterpiece if you ask me uh, it's just it's just so cool you know um charlotte hadley arcane roots and uh, lonely robot they're they're the embodiments of, of people like me well they're much better than me actually <laughs> but you know just like people that they love space but they're doing something else. And this is something that um, the science industry are trying to bring into the equation now because you obviously know of the STEM subjects. Of course. They're trying to change that to the STEAM subjects by adding art into that equation. And obviously art also covers literature, music, and everything else that goes along with that. So um, I, I did actually mention this to a guy called uh, Ryan Kobrick, who's, who's one of the directors of Yuri's Night, and he's also a professor at the Embry-Riddle um, Aeronautics University in Florida and was part of the Mars Desert uh, Research Station program. Really? And they had a photographer there who was an artist as well. So they had an artist in residence Mm -hmm. at the station. And I said, was it important to have an artist involved with the project? And he said, you know, 100%. It's it's important to 
for people to see things from a different perspective. It is. It is, absolutely. Um, probably one of my favorite exhibits I saw in ages was uh, the Cosmonauts exhibit uh, at the, uh, the the Science Museum here in London. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was and it was just all about space from the, uh, the Russian perspective, you know. And, and what was great about it was it wasn't just about the space race. Of course, that's a huge focus. And my gosh, I mean, when I walked in and I saw like the prototype for a Russian lunar lander, you know, which almost looked like a, it looked like an alternate reality interpretation of what the Apollo lander looked like. I mean, it was just absolutely mind-blowing. But what was also so important was they showed the body of literature that had been around for over over 100 years, you know, just like the, the, the this culture of curiosity and aspiration and, um, you know, just seeing things from another perspective was just so important to that whole experience because it wasn't just about the technology. It was about the art that it inspired. It was about the literature that sure. had predated, uh, you know, uh, any any actual space exploration. And, and actually, I mean, just a you know, just as an aside, the mind-blowing accuracy with which people predicted just how things could possibly work. You know, just like in the 19th century. I mean, just absolutely incredible. You know, so I, I think what we're doing isn't necessarily unique um, or groundbreaking. It's merely that we're we're simply distilling it. Uh, you know, in this way, we're calling it something. But uh, I think people have been doing this for for a long time. You you're saying that uh, I've read an article about a manuscript which goes back probably four or five hundred years and it's in Romania and it describes a three-stage rocket yeah five hundred years ago how is that possible (laughs) you ever read that book the uh, the demon haunted world Carl Sagan um, um, I know of it. I haven't actually read yeah, it myself. He, he kind of takes a step aside from uh, astronomy and cosmology and just begins to talk about science in general, like this sort of Gandalf versus the Balrog kind of struggle between light and darkness. And uh, it's not to kind of put that sort of weight on science, but I think, um, you know, we, we've only just emerged from like the kind of primordial goo intellectually. Again, I mean, not, not, not to go on the pulpit here, uh, but yeah, <laughs> I, I really hope the space rocks can maybe help move the needle even in, in, a, in an infinitesimal way. I guess the same way that you guys are doing, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, ce- it's celebrating and having fun with something that, that we all admire and enthuse about, and uh, it's underpinned perhaps by an idealism, you know? Uh, I, I, I definitely get that feeling from pretty much everyone like yourself that I've chatted with. It's just people, just they just like this stuff. For us, it was, it was an amazing learning curve getting involved in this podcast because I, I've been podcasting on and off since 2011 I I just did a general podcast it was more like a magazine podcast if you like where if anyone's got something to share they want to come on the show and talk about it that's fine we used to invite people on Uh, we used to have the tagline your input is our output (laughs) I like that and uh, we were told by many people that it's kind of like a union because being a podcaster is a very lonely existence because yeah. you do your thing, it could be weeks before you get any feedback from anybody sure. regarding it. So it, it's great to have a show where people can come on and talk about their things and, and escalate it to another audience. Mm-hmm. So we were happy to do that. I started then every year doing a Yuri's Night podcast. Mm-hmm. and tried to change it up every year. Then I noticed that space-related stuff was creeping in to the show more regularly. <laughs> and I thought, I think maybe I should do a dedicated show. 
I love that. And that's where TGP Nominal came from. From the TGP is the garbage pod. Yeah. Uh, nominal, obviously, is everything's good when it comes to a launch. And I couldn't think of a, a more positive word to use regarding what we were putting out. Yeah, so we started doing that, and it was just myself and my co-host, John, who's, as I say, he's over in Pennsylvania. So this is, is a transatlantic podcast. <laughs> and then we started to get other people involved. Uh, we've now got our own resident astronomer who is part of a, a charity-based astronomy group called UK right. Astronomy. And right. it's basically they, they're there to, to teach they go to whoever wants them to be at their events or, you know, scout movement or the guides or schools. They go there, they teach them about astronomy. Wow, I love that. Um, at the moment, they're only doing it within the, the home counties, but they are mm -hmm. trying to raise money for a mobile observatory. Really? How fantastic. Wow. So, uh, oh gosh, I mean, do they, do they need help? I mean, it's just like we have a tiny database, but, you know, we can certainly... You know, I mean, I guess just uh, these are the sort of things that I, I'd love for us to be aware of and help out in. But I mean, that's that's just so cool. Obviously, we're very behind STEM and uh, or STEAM and uh, doing some pretty cool things there. But uh, I mean, the I mean, the thing is, we we have a we have a tiny but but growing newsletter. It's actually really surprising because we've not really done much to promote it just yet. All you need is one person sometimes who's mm -hmm. just willing to reach in the pocket. So. Uh, well, they've, they've uh, been going to um, some of the, you know, the the Natural Trust. Um, they look after a lot of the, the old buildings in the UK. Yeah. And they've actually asked, can you do an astronomy night at one of our houses? And there's this huge house in uh, Buckinghamshire called mm -hmm. Stowe House. Right. And it's the most awesome backdrop for doing your astronomy. And he did a, a you know a talk inside and then outside with the big telescopes and stuff. So yeah, once they've got the money for the mobile observatory, they can go out to more places and and educate. And then after that, he's got plans for trying to fund an inflatable planetarium. An inflatable planetarium. What's that going to look like? Basically, an inflatable tent that you can put a projector in that projects constellations and stuff around the inside of the dome. Wow, sounds like a mad genius. That that's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you you could just take that anywhere, couldn't you? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. really good. So yeah, I like that. Um, so he comes on the show every month and does his guide to the, what's going on in the skies for the for the following month. He works with us on a lot of different things. I help him out as much as I can. I can't help him out as I would like to financially because, I mean, I've got to find a way to monetize what we do because I'd like us to get out to more places, but that costs money. So <laughs> yeah. that's one thing we we will like to do this year. I, I might start up a, a Patreon scheme. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good idea, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, just always, you know, just uh, treating it like a step process, having worked in magazines and everything else for a long time, you have a following, you have an audience um, and you're doing great things. And it's just like, you know, when you're transparent with people and you go, you know what, it's not going to happen unless I get your help. Most people are, are pretty cool about that. It's just the value proposition has to be there in the first place. And I see a lot of crowdfunding things kind of falling down because it's just, you, you know, you don't want to pay for churn, do you? No. You know? So, um, uh, so, well, I mean, again, I mean, you just have to say the word. 
we, we have a small but you know slowly growing following I mean I'm, I'm sure that uh, it won't hurt matters um, so just say when that's happening and uh, you know be very happy to consider this as the start of a relationship not just a, a one-off kind of thing and you know uh, like I'm, I'm just really hoping we're here in a few months you know I, I appreciate um, that because I know that's where your forte is is the, the the media and the social media side of things so any any assistance to getting the word out there about us would be would of course be fantastic what a, well, just, just say the word, you know? I mean, this is the thing. It's just like, uh, it, it sounds like the kind of thing you're supposed to say there, but it's the truth also. You know, it's just, we, we want to make a community out of this. And uh, the point for me is to uh, just help connect some dots. You know, it, it, it took a long time to get the, the contract for this whole thing done. 15 months, maybe? Something like that? Yeah. And it, it and it, it's not because anyone didn't want it to happen, but it's just because we felt like... Um, it was worth it that, you know, we should continue to pursue it. We're, we're trying to focus on the first one and just think about like the next 10 that we really want to do and yeah. just make a, make a small event as good as we can for everybody. It's such a pleasure to chat with you. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate your support today. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's been really, really fun. That's what we do on TGP nominal because, you know, anything to do with space and science, technology, whatever we, we're there basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, so are we. You know, uh, we're your front row seat to the final frontier. Do you like that? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, man, I'm not sure. You know, uh, I'm going to have to practice it a few times. But I, I, I thank you so much for your time. Um, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweet something now. And then, uh, look, just, just uh, any way else I can help, just, just get in touch. I'll wait to hear on the Yuri's Night from you, okay? Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, I hope to speak to you again very soon. Anytime. All right, man. Thanks again. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. So, yeah, that was Alexander Milas. Now, he is really passionate about space and science and technology and geekery and everything that goes along with it. To be honest with you, there was a lot more recorded than I actually put in the, the show. Um, he actually put a post up uh, on Twitter saying uh, he had a, a fun time with TGP Nominal and basically he was wondering how I'm going to edit this down because there was a lot to edit. <laughs> <laughs> and he could have been talking to me for about six hours. Yeah. So what did you make of that? What was the phrase you used? We're, we're preaching from the same Bible or preaching from we're, the same We're preaching something? from the same hymn book. Pre yeah, preaching from the same hymn book. So <laughs> what could I add except simply, yeah, I agree with him. <laughs> well, well, let me say this, though. You made a statement about, well, I don't know if I should really you know, call people nerds. You can call me a nerd all you want. I was a nerd before being a nerd was cool. And if people who think that being a nerd is not cool, yeah, you're not cool because nerds are cool. <laughs> okay. All, all nerd means is that you're, you're really passionate about something, whether it's a book nerd, science nerd. You know, I'll even go so far as to say quilting nerd, knitting nerd, you know, car repair nerd. I don't care. If you're passionate about something, you're a nerd for that thing, and there's no shame in that. I think I call myself a neek. <laughs> What's a neek? It's a cross between a nerd and a geek. Uh, no. <laughs> you have an eye to say neek. No, that's not it. No, but that, that one thing that you said about uh, front row seat to the final frontier. Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, we're your front row seat to the final frontier. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Just to throw that in. <laughs> you know, kind of reminiscent to remember Winamp? Mm-hmm. Winamp, it really kicks the llama's yeah, what was it with that llama? <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> no idea whatsoever. But, you know, so it's like, we're your front row seat to the final frontier. Whipping the llamas at... No, sorry, that, that wouldn't work. 
Did he say he was an archaeologist? Yeah, that took me back as well, actually, hearing that he was an archaeologist. If you were to see the guy, uh, yeah. <laughs> doesn't look like one. He doesn't look like Indiana Jones, put it that way. See, that's what I get with astronomy. Because I'm young looking, of course. When I go out and do, like, meet people, they always go, oh, you're a lot younger than we thought you'd be. <laughs> so I know how he feels. He also said there that he used to be the editor-in-chief of Metal Hammer magazine, mm. which is a heavy metal magazine. So, so you've got an archaeologist who's into metal. Yeah. <laughs> which is good really especially if you're dealing with the Iron Age and stuff like that I guess but yep. uh... <laughs> yeah and then he, did he say that Tim Peake kind of invented the name as well uh, the Space Rocks yeah yeah um, as I mentioned there uh, Space Rocks was a, a thing that was dreamed up that Tim Peake had a mission patch made up which mm. was basically uh, in the shape of a guitar pick uh, <laughs> with a, a guitar floating in space on the they've patch. had a car haven't they so yeah and <laughs> basically he used to put up on Twitter lyrics from a song each day and you had to try and guess what song these lyrics came from and then, yep. then you send in all of them and at the end of the, each week they would pull one of these recipients out of a you know out of the bag and you would win one of these mission patches one of these Tim Peake Space Rocks mission patches cool and uh, I didn't win one. And oh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll make one up for you. <laughs> so it's happening on April the 22nd, and you've got three different sessions, as I mentioned there. The first session is called Space Academy, and it's perfect for children of all ages. I like that. All ages. Excellent. That means My us. sort of level. That means us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, th this session will feature demonstrations and discussions by uh, ESA scientists, engineers. Tim Peake is part of the panel. Uh, Dr. Maggie Liu. She studies dark matter. Yeah, she's an astrophysicist. Uh, you've got Dr. Beth Healy, who is a medical researcher that was at the Antarctic Research Station. So she was there for a... A year, yeah, it was like I think. A year, yeah. Wow, imagine. Oh, that must be in a way horrible. <laughs> in a way, almost like staying like on the ISS, isn't it? It's very, you know, desolate, nothing yeah. barren. There's nothing going on. You're stuck with the same people. And we say the same joke every year at Yuri's Night that um, at the Antarctic Research Station they actually have a Yuri's Night party. <laughs> there and we always say well if you want to go to a party that you're guaranteed to have a cold drink that's the place don't need a fridge <laughs> just leave it outside also involved in that we mentioned him quite a bit in in the clip there is uh, dr matt taylor he's the guy with the loud shirts that was involved with the rosetta mission any relation to yours i wish <laughs> um, kind of a hero of mine for many reasons um, one of them I mentioned there is part of the 501st Legion which is a, a charity organisation set up by Lucasfilm who dress up as stormtroopers and raise money for charities he's part of the Dutch garrison because that's where he's based that was where he does his research so uh, when he's not researching into space probes and science and all this kind of stuff he's parading around as a stormtrooper good man <laughs> who doesn't want to be a stormtrooper i'll show you how committed he is and i mentioned this quite a bit but for some of the listeners they might not know about this but how committed he was to the rosetta program he's actually got a tattoo on his leg of the 
Rosetta space probe. That's dedication right there. Just, isn't it? That is dedication. And he even had a range of temporary tattoos made up of his tattoo that he was giving to kids. Nice. <laughs> Inspire him young. He's an amazing guy. He's full of passion about what he does. Everything he does, actually. He's, his love of music, his love of science, his love of sci-fi. Just an ideal candidate, really, to have on the panel for this event. Also in that panel doesn't really need any introduction Tim Peake who's that then <laughs> <laughs> and and the whole thing is hosted by Dallas Campbell who does a lot of television work in the UK he used to do a show called Bang Goes the Theory don't know mm -hmm. if you remember that show yeah I do yeah uh, bit I remember like, the name bit like Tomorrow's World <laughs> yeah kind of thing and he does a lot of BBC4 documentaries about science and space and things like that and he's, I think he's been on the Sky at Night a couple of times yep. he's, he's definitely been involved with Stargazing Live one of the funniest stories I've got about him not him directly I was talking to Gareth Jones who used to be on a, another kids' TV show about science and technology and stuff yeah. called How To. Yep, I know that. And um, he originally was on TV known as Gaz Top. That's what he used to go under the name of on television. He doesn't like to go under that name anymore because he's, he's proud of his Welsh roots. And once people <laughs> know he's Welsh, so he's Gareth Jones, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> he said to me that the, one of the reasons why he changed his name back to his original name of Gareth Jones was he didn't think people would take him seriously with a name like Gaz Top. <laughs> to which I said to him, have you heard of Dallas Campbell? <laughs> yeah. And he said, no, yeah, you've got a point there. <laughs> but he hasn't changed it back. No, he's still Gareth Jones. <laughs> he's happy. Yeah, he's doing all right. <laughs> um, another space fan when it comes to mainly space hardware. He likes his rockets and stuff. Mm -hmm. He's a big um, Star Trek fan as well. So all of that is just the first bit. Yeah. So a couple of hours from what I can see, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 30, yeah. 2.30, yeah. That's an event on its own. Yeah. Well, how they're doing it is you can book it in sections. So you can either just go to one of the sections or you can book it for all of the sections. Oh, or nice. pick and choose which ones you want to go to. I think yeah. actually they may have sold out of the first one. Did you know that right now we have a spacecraft orbiting the moon? The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been at the moon for over seven years, providing unprecedented detail into our nearest neighbor in space. I'm Noah Petro, and for more information about the moon and the LRO mission, go to nasa.gov LRO and follow us on Twitter, at LRO underscore NASA. Greetings, fellow Earthlings. This is Richard Garriott, the 483rd person to leave our home planet and the first second-generation American astronaut. If, like me, you long to explore the cosmos, take heart. While only a few of the over 18,000 NASA applicants will fly with NASA, there are many new avenues opening up for us to use. In addition to government astronauts and private astronauts like me, we will soon see independent commercial activities in space, which will be privately funded, privately planned, profitable enterprises, which will fly astronauts of their own. So the challenge I lay before you is to plan and execute some of these bold new businesses which will lead humanity into being a multi-planet species. See you on Mars, and happy Yuri's Night. Who said we have a problem? This is TGP Nominal. 
Alexander also made arrangements for me to chat with the very talented Charlotte Hatherley, who was on tour, and she called me from a hotel in Switzerland. Joining me on the line is Charlotte Hatherley. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Now, the reason you're on the line today is because you're involved in Space Rocks. What part do you have to play in the whole scope of things? I met Mark McCorkran and Alexander Milas just over a year ago when they were on their way to a Yes concert. <laughs> and oh. I met them for a drink beforehand and we talked about the Space Rocks idea um, and now it's actually happening in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Two, three weeks. I can't believe it. It's not that it's just far. around the corner. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess my solo record, True Love, is a quite heavily sci-fi influence visually. Um, and I made a video with Gavin Rothery directing who is a big sci-fi film fan and we made this sort of ode to sci-fi films that we love and um, Mark got in touch with me through social media um, to say that he loved it as well as being like senior advisor at the European Space Agency he's a massive fan of music and um, I think what they're trying to do is bring music, film, art, culture together with science and it's just very exciting. Because that's where you pretty much come into the whole thing because the kind of projects that you're involved in right now are, are kind of experimental aren't they? The record I've released is, I mean, it's a sort of electro-pop record, really. Songs about heartbreak and loneliness and, and all that fun stuff. But my main influence, really, for the, the design of the record and how it looks and how I present myself live and in the videos and the artwork is all kind of inspired by my love of 80s science fiction film. I'm also a big David Bowie fan and I love The Man Who Felt Worse. And so I guess I'm, I'm not really talking about sort of science fiction concepts as such this is quite a, a human emotional record but everything around it is me indulging my love for for science fiction the whole imagery that goes along with it isn't it because yeah the video for the track on the album called a sign is spectacular in, in itself and as you said, you loved David Bowie's music, and there is a connection there, isn't there? Yes, we filmed down at Pet Level on this beach that was, uh, it, was quite, it was quite a strange beach. It wasn't it wasn't the beach we we were intending to film on. We changed our minds at the last minute and found a much closer one. And um, it had like this petrified ancient forest underneath the sand, so all these branches were sticking out, and it was quite sort of weird, surreal-looking beach. And then we got up at sunrise, like four in the morning, to get the, the amazing sunrise that we got. And then we sort of packed up around midday, and then just as we were leaving, someone said that the beach that Bowie filmed Ashes to Ashes on, and you look at the cliffs in the distance, and it's exactly the same. It's quite an amazing thing for me. What with the the makeup and everything that you had on, it, the whole experience was very alien. Um, hmm. I mean, Gavin did a, a wonderful job of, of adding extra pieces in the background to make it look even yeah. more outer-worldly. Yeah, I mean, th that was inspired by a film called The Quiet Earth, which is the ending that a guy wakes up in a sort of parallel universe and he but he wakes up on the beach and you think it's earth but in the horizon it's like this, the camera pulls away and there's like this huge ringed planet and you realise that it's not Earth at all. And I, I like those little subtle additions that Gav made, and he's he's just a wonderful concept artist. So, you know, we were able to do something that really didn't cost any money and make it look amazing. And that's not your only uh, space-related connection, because you've, you've also done another track that... Um 
the European Space Agency collaborated mm. with you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, for my second single, Night Vision, I released an EP, a five-track EP of songs that I love from film, and I, I just covered a load of songs. Um, I did Absolute Beginners by David Bowie, Repo Man, Iggy Pop, um, Rejoice in the Sun, which is on the Silent and Running soundtrack by Joan, Joan Byers. And I did How Deep Is Your Love, which is a, a BG song from Saturday Night Fever. And um, I went to see Mark McCorkran do this presentation in Warsaw. He does these ESA presentations talking about the many missions that he's been a part of. And there was like, it was, it was a very short video of the stars of Orion and how they'd look thousands and thousands of years in, in the future. And the stars are moving apart very slowly. And I said that I thought it was really beautiful. And, and then he, he offered to stretch it out to six minutes for the song, for How Deep Is Your Love. So in all, it's like three million years of the stars of Orion moving away from each other. And so I use that as the basis of the video. And then you can go to the ESA website and download videos for free lots of amazing stuff and then he sent me some high-res videos of just beautiful imagery and I stuck it in a video so it was really nice and, and kind of the perfect showcase of collaboration you know before Space Rocks of what merging music and science can, can do. And it is such a beautiful video I mean what you need to see it on a big screen because it is it's fantastic to, to it see. It is beautiful yeah yeah and again it was so easy to make and you know, it's, it's not easy to make a good music video, especially with like hardly any money. So really, it's all about the collaboration and, and, and working with people who give you what you want. And I've been really lucky with Gavin and with CESA. They've been so generous. If you merge that kind of imagery from that video with your voice and together, it's, it's quite haunting, actually. It's, it's beautiful. Well, thanks very much. I mean, I'm going to be using some of that footage for at the Space Rocks gig. I'll be having projections in the background and I'll be using a lot of the ESA stuff. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Mm. Uh, a lot of people probably know you from when you used to be in the band Ash. Um, yeah. and, and you've done a, a, a lot since then. I mean, you, you've worked with so many different people. What kind of things have you done since you left the band? Um, well, I left the band when I was like uh, 27, 26, 27. Joined when I was 18, so eight years. And uh, just before I left the band, I, I did do a solo record called Grey Will Fade. And then when I was solo, I, I released another record, The Deep Blue. And then between The Deep Blue and New Worlds, I was sort of figuring out where I was, really. I mean, it was a difficult time where, you know, you, you have this sort of touring family and stability, and then that disappeared. And I had to really deal with a lot of of issues that being in a rock band touring the world you don't have to deal with and um it was quite a confronting time and it, I, I i sort of ended up um doing some session work for brian ferry which was really odd but landed in my lap just at the right moment and then really the breakthrough in terms of like what i've been doing for the last 10 years I met Natasha Khan from Bat for Lashes when I was 30 and she was the same age as me and um, we kind of connected instantly and I toured with Bat for Lashes for a couple of years so I took a big break from songwriting. I, I sort of did three solo records and then toured with Bat for Lashes and then I toured with Katie Tunstall as a guitar player but in the middle of writing the, the new record um, I met Gavin Rothery and he asked me to write music to his 20-minute sci-fi short film called The Last Man, which you can find on YouTube. So I did that and then I came back to my record and um, used some of the instrumentals from that writing process 
put that into the new record. I didn't really want to do a, a record in the same way that I've done the previous ones. It wasn't really a, a guitar indie rock record. It was something quite different, so I felt like I would just sort of reinvent myself, really, and, and do it under this idea of the lonely alien uh, traveling through the universe, trying to find love. That's just kind of the idea of, of the record, really. And then since then, I've been playing with lots of different bands. I'm currently musical directing at, at South African artist called Nakane, currently touring with him. So I've sort of gone down this collaborative session musician path, but I've always written my own music on the side. And I guess it's a balancing act between being an independent artist and then I sort of primarily make a living from playing with other people. Um, so I guess it's, it's quite an eclectic life, really. <laughs> that's, that's kind of good, though, because you, you yeah. it never gets boring that way. It never gets boring, and I guess the way the music industry is now, you have to really diversify there's still investment for bands at a certain level but um the sort of smaller bands smaller intermediary bands is still quite difficult and music venues are being threatened with closure left right and center rehearsal spaces don't really exist it's difficult out there and and i think i've just been so lucky that i've just kept on my path and um i've always sort of got away with it <laughs> So the industry now is is a completely different ball game than when you started out. Yeah, absolutely. It's so so different. When I started, I guess even down to touring, there was um, I was on a tour bus with fifteen people, and and now it's very hard to make any money from touring. But well, I guess that's kind of the main way because people don't buy records anymore. So the onus is on touring, but um, it's it's hard it's hard to break even if you're a smaller band unless you get like major investment from a label. And labels don't really take huge risks anymore, or you certainly don't get the tour support or the advances that you would get. Even with a publishing deal, you don't really get much money up front. And I'm not saying that this is a terrible thing across the board. I mean, sometimes it's good to have restraints and restrictions. And like even with the videos I've made, you, you can make something really amazing with, with not much. You just have to be a little bit more creative and more inventive. But I think it does mean that you have to look for other areas to support yourself. And I, I know a lot of amazing musicians who are teachers or who haven't been able to keep on being in bands and have to do something else. So in that respect, I, I regard myself to be lucky that I still primarily make a living out of music. Yeah. I think mostly what you need is someone to take a risk and yeah. to invest in you and support you, um, especially these days with younger musicians and new artists. You need someone to uh, lift you up, really. I guess a lot of the artists I work with are are those kind of, you know, you, you get lucky you strike a chord or you have just the right song at the right moment and it and it connects um but there are so many amazing musicians who don't have have that opportunity who just sort of slip through the cracks yeah and it's also really it's harder to find new music as well i mean even in this age of spotify where everything's it kind of feels like you should have more access but i think sometimes the saturation means that some stuff just gets lost and there are some hidden gems out there. I mean, um, and it's taken a while for some of them, you know, some of these artists to come through. And you think, well, you know, how come people never heard of you before? Where have you been? And it's, 
and it's just a case of I've been trying to come through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I have to tour with other people to pay for my solo records, recording and touring. I love it. It's primarily why I do it. I need to do it, but then it kind of means that I can't really promote my records that well. I'd love to do more gigs, but I'm with someone else for most of this year. So it's it's kind of like a constant catch-22. I was actually watching a documentary about that kind of thing recently. It was all about people that are superb musicians in their own right, but they choose not to be. They, mm. they choose to be on the sideline for some of the bigger bands. But yeah. th these bands couldn't operate if they didn't have these people on the sideline with them. Yeah, I think I know the, the programme you mean. I mean, in, in another way, it's sort of, I don't know, I think it kind of suits my personality as well. It's like I quite like being under the radar. I like being able to release songs when I want to release songs, release videos when I want to release videos. And I think the days of music being consumed with a very strict timetable is that's completely changed. So you can, you know, there's there's room to release a video on YouTube and it can take months and months and months or even years to accumulate decent views. But mm -hmm. it's it's out there and it will. So I kind of think just the time scale of everything has changed and, and that kind of suits me because it just means that I can do it at my my own pace and then I realized it's been five years since my last record and I don't know how that's happened but wow. it just has it's taken a really long time to get to this point but then again I don't have any label telling me to, to deliver so you're totally independent then I am yeah it, it, it's good I mean it works for me it just means that I can do all the other stuff that I do and and it, it's not a problem you know, I was just reading about Bowie that whole sort of Berlin era where he released Low and Heroes in the same year. Mm. I think, you know, it was so common to like bang records out in those days, but then they had access to these amazing recording studios and amazing musicians. I think that's becoming more and more difficult as well because everything's become low budget and home recording and it's it's hard to build that family around you. Yeah. I was I was thinking, God, I need to uh I need to write some more songs. <laughs> It's probably a bit difficult to explain, but do you get your inspiration from very unusual places? Um, I don't know. I mean, I was on a train a couple of days ago from Bristol to London, and I was looking out the window, and I suddenly started thinking, oh, you know, I'd quite like to write a new record, and we'll be about this, and, and, and sort of gathering up ideas. And up to that point, like the last year, I've just been thinking I never want to do another record ever again. <laughs> I mean, I think you sort of get inspiration from a mysterious place and then what I like to do is start reading books and watching films and then it's all like becomes research for what you want to write about and I really love that process the writing and the writing the lyrics yeah I mean each record has a different theme that you're sort of fishing around for inspiration and I guess just with this current record it just happened to be science fiction films but it could be anything really I don't think it's that weird because <laughs> I, I, I don't actually think it's weird at all because obviously to do an interview with someone you, it's, it's always best to kind of research into them a little bit so you, you've got something to go on when you're actually talking mm. with them and obviously I was looking into the, the, the music from the new album and, and stuff like that and the concept to me came across as well if somebody's travelling across space I mean if for, for example if you were going to Mars it's going to take like 18 months to get there 18 months back that's a long time to be away from someone and mm. a bit of a struggle yeah so that's where I was thinking from what I was hearing from your music 
Yeah, I mean, I think the idea was more of it was like a sort of self-imposed exile, removing yourself from painful, difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like a pilgrimage, really. And then at the end of that solitary journey, you would reach some sort of insight. And I think my personal take on it was that, you know, I'd come out of a relationship and and I'd pretty much been in a relationship back to back since I was 18. And um, I needed to be alone. And it was I was in my 30s and probably at an age where you start to look at these various bumps in the road and start thinking well this has happened quite a few times now you start to see patterns of behavior and i think i just thought i need to sort of address some things i could be better at relationships in particular so it was it was about that really it was about this sort of journey of discovery of like why are things not really going the way i want them to and it's not really a vengeful record about the other person it's more about self uh analysis is basically therapy (laughs) but it's interesting you should say that about the journey times because a big part of my life is touring and traveling and it does really take its toll on relationships and it's a big part of escapism you know there could be areas of your life that aren't really so great but then it's fine because i'm on tour for six months and it's so the suspended reality and suspended use where you don't really have to handle your problems. You have a tour manager and you know what you're doing every day and your responsibilities are limited. And then you come back home and those problems are still there, but you've you've just not thought about them. Yeah, maybe it's a bit of both. It's a bit of like running away, self, self-imposed exile to, to get better. But then there's also a bit of escapism there as well of like, God, things aren't great. I'm, I'm going to go away and uh, come back when I feel better. Escapism is a good thing. As long as you're being responsible with your your mental health. Yeah. <laughs> I think as long as you're sort of able to tune into how you're feeling and not not just what's wrong but why is it wrong. I think that was the important thing. It was it was a quest there are questions and trying not to like paper over the cracks to to kind of expose them and be like, let's have a good look at this little dark corner. Which, you know, it's very easy not to do that. Nobody wants to do that, really. Nobody wants to look behind the fridge. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't go there. (laughs) No. You never know what you will find. Exactly. But uh, sometimes it's got to be done because then you just think, well, then nothing will ever change and this, this will always be a problem. Now, you've graciously let us use a track for playing into the show. Can you let us know a little bit about the song? Yeah, it was one of the first songs that I wrote for this record. And it's kind of got like cut up lyrics, which is sort of inspired by Bowie, who was then inspired by William Burroughs, where I I took like various phrases that I really liked and I stuck them together. So it's like a stream of consciousness. And fundamentally, it's about someone who's just left a relationship who's not quite ready to move on. But it's in that awkward time where you you actually do meet someone and they're basically saying don't worry it's it's going to be okay i'm i'm going to look after you but 
you're just kind of like, I can't do it. You're still sort of emotionally tethered to the, the heartbreak. It's quite a beautiful song. I mean, I, it's actually one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, very proud of this song and it's it's going to be released at the same time it's released on the 8th of the 20th and then the space rocks gigs on the 22nd so i'm just working on a video for that now where i am in full alien regalia <laughs> <laughs> again so yeah that's hook you up Charlotte, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. And um, I look forward to seeing you on uh, the 22nd. 
come and say hi yeah I definitely will I'll speak to you later yeah take care thank you bye 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 thanks to Charlotte for exclusively let us play hook you up on the show how cool was that brilliant I've listened to her other one as well. Is it called A Sign, isn't it? Yeah. Had a sneak YouTube. <laughs> and I watched the video. I think that's brilliant. It's all very sci-fi, isn't it? It is. And, and there's a little sort of like meaning at the end. Yeah. So I won't ruin. But yeah, as I said, that, that last song, the one that you guys actually had just then, I said it actually reminded me of a game, didn't it? Yeah, it did. We had a little chat offline. And yeah, there was a game on the Mega Drive ages ago, if you're young or old enough to know. And it was called Starflight. And the beginning of that sounded just like the first sort of sci-fi game that I ever kind of, you know, it's an exploration game where you fly around and you land on planets for resources and pick up alien life and sell them for fuel (laughs) and weapons, as you do. And yeah, it really, really took me back to that. So it kind of like touched a little, you know, little emotion in me of my childhood. So it's quite cool to hear. It's got the same sort of like ambiance, isn't it, of the, Mm the space and, you know, it's kind of a bit eerie, but still kind of cool and... Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was good. The other one that she mentioned, or she was talking about, she did a cover version of How Deep Is Your Love, Mm. uh, originally done by the Bee Gees. And the video for it, you've got to look it up. It's amazing. Um, (laughs) It's it's the one where the European Space Agency got involved with it and sent us some high-definition imagery of of Orion. Yeah, I did did see it. I looked that one up as well because it came up afterwards. So you, you've got that so, imagery with her voice, which is quite a haunting voice that mm-hmm. she's got, and the two just mix together so well. <laughs> and it's got a bit of side fact there as well, isn't it? Because the, the, the stars of Orion are actually moving over. They made it so it moves over thousands of years, isn't it? Or yeah. billions of years. Yeah. It shows what Orion will actually look like. Perhaps maybe when we are in space and traveling, it would have actually changed because the stars are actually moving. Mm-hmm. Which I, you know, that hit my astronomy nerd. Yeah, I thought it might. <laughs> Button. Yeah, so it's great. I mean, for going from from someone who you didn't actually know, and then I, looked into her, her work, and then it was like, wow, this is quite amazing stuff. Yeah, I saw all the comments I saw in there as well were people saying how good it was and how visually impressive and how nice her voice was, and they said it was really well done. I mean, she she mentioned to me that she's running on a quite a strict budget when it comes to making mm. these videos, and and what they've managed to. Re- achieve is pretty amazing stuff yeah with a low budget it looks it looks top notch doesn't it mm. i mean i don't know much about music and you know i've never been in that sort of side of stuff but to hear how she you know funds it and stuff and tours to get money to then make her own it's cool but kind of crazy yeah it's like you have to kind of tour with others and help others to then help save yourself. up to actually get your own up and out there. Yeah. Now that leads us nicely onto the second session of the Space Rocks events, uh, which is entitled Science Fiction versus Space Fact. And this element of the event will look at popular portrayals of space and space exploration and see how they stack up to the uh, the work that's actually being done every day. Featuring the ESA Senior Science Advisor, Professor Mark McCorrigan, science fiction bestseller Dr. Alastair Reynolds, Tim Peake, film director and moon creator Gavin Rothery, and, of course, Charlotte Haverley. Now, Gavin Rothery was mentioned in both Charlotte's section and in Alexander's section. Have you seen the movie? movie moon it was the guy the clone wasn't it yeah well he doesn't realize he's a clone yeah 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 that there was a low budget one as well that wasn't it yeah 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 i I loved it so he actually directed 
that video for Charlotte. Oh, excellent. So uh, he directed a, a short film called The Last Man. Uh, it's only about 20 minutes long. It's really worth looking for. It's yeah. on YouTube. And Charlotte did the soundtrack. Oh, excellent. For so they worked together. Yeah. So she basically did the soundtrack for him. And in return, he directed her video. See? Helping everyone out again. So that's what it's all about. You have to help each other. <laughs> that's it. We mentioned Alistair Reynolds there, um, a former European Space Agency scientist. So for someone to be actually writing science fiction and he knows the ins and outs of the actual science of it. Yeah, so technically then the stuff he's writing could blossom into reality. Yeah, and that's what this section is all about, how the sci-fi and the sci-fact can merge together to create reality. So I reckon that's going to be a really interesting part of the whole proceedings. Oh, definitely. I mean, I've, I've done a, I've done a talk like that. <laughs> I've done one about uh, the science of Star Wars. Oh, right. And put in, put in sort of like a, it's, it's only like a little half-hour presentation about how you know some of the moons play. It's about Voyager, pretty much. I started with the Voyager and it flying through the solar system and you know how a lot of the stuff you see in the Star Wars film or all of the films now actually relate to the real things in our solar system and they are there all these you know the moons and things like that we thought moons were just icy dead bits of rock before Voyager and the Voyager actually left when the first Star Wars film came out yeah 77 yeah yeah so I linked them both together like that and it's George Lucas he didn't even they didn't know anything about the moons yet he invented moons with trees on and you know little teddy bears running around and things like that yeah. and that could be there it could, they actually then found I mean look at the moons of Jupiter we've, we've chatted about this before haven't we mm-hmm they're, all four of them are completely different That's to it. each other. To then talk about all that in space flight as well, how some of the spaceships actually fly. I mean, they've, they've actually invented the TIE fighter engine, haven't they, NASA? Uh, yeah, the ion it? engine, yeah. Was, as I said before, I think, in one of the talks, it's got a sound like that. Come on, the old token TIE fighter sound as it flies past. If they can make it... <laughs> the thing is... Spaceships sound like that as well. The thing is... Brilliant. It, It'd only work when it's on launch. You'd have to put that effect in when it when it's on launch because once you get up there, there isn't any sound. No, it would just have to be a speaker <laughs> inside. Yeah, put your headphones <laughs> on. That'd be good pretend, enough. Yeah, pretend you're in a tie fighter. <laughs> but yeah, so they've actually invented the engine. So it was theoretical. So obviously George Lucas must have heard about it and thought, right, I'm going to chuck that in. And now it's reality. Yeah. I think a talk about that kind of thing could go on forever, to be honest. So mm. they've got a lot to fit in that small two-hour segment. Yep, slot. Definitely. There's so many sci-fi, films, books, everything. Which one do you choose? <laughs> and then the final section of the proceedings is called Space Rocks Live, which is the concert part of the event. Obviously, we know Charlotte's involved. We know, uh, well, we know they're all involved because Alexander mentioned them. So you've, you've got Charlotte, you've got Arcane Roots and Lonely Robot. Now, if you've been watching some of the posts that have been put up by Space Rocks and not I've been putting them up on uh, Facebook and Twitter, there's a little video, kind of like an advert, if you like, for Space Rocks event. And the music is done by uh, Lonely Robot. Yeah. And it really does sound like it should be the soundtrack to a movie. <laughs> it's, Maybe it, it will be. Yeah, it's it's heavy. There's, there's a lot of rock involved in it. But it's it's kind of got this atmosphere that you can imagine something big coming through space. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty impressive. Maybe the next Star Wars film, eh? <laughs> 
<laughs> and then, as I say, Arcane Roots, they are... It's difficult to sort of say what their kind of music is. It says here that they've been compared to Muse and uh, uh, to Radiohead. So there's a, a whole... Range there. Yeah, there's a spectrum of different sounds that they <laughs> can They're produce. They're obviously very good at evolving. Yeah. Also, they have this special gallery, which is called the Space Lounge, which will be open from midday till 7.30pm. Open to all ticket holders throughout the day, which has static displays, interactive exhibits, and much, much more. You can interact with ESA scientists and all other invited guests in a casual, friendly environment. And there'll be tea and coffee and beers and wine available as well, so... Why not? What's what's stopping you? Go and get a ticket now. (laughs) Yeah, it does sound such a such amazing event. And Alan Taylor Shearer and I will hopefully be bringing you some amazing content from the Space of Rocks event on the 22nd. And I'm already getting a bit excited about it, if I'm honest with you. (laughs) I can't go and I'm excited. (laughs) That's what we're hoping to do. We're hoping to bring as much as we can of the event to people that can't actually make it. We're going to try and get some interviews with some of the people that are there some of the guests um the panelists capture some of the music not all of it we're not going to record the entire concert we're just going to put that <laughs> little snippets of it so that you can get an idea of what's going on we wouldn't do that to the artists it's not fair um it'd be a long podcast as well yeah it would be and obviously we want to talk to some of the people that are actually attending the event find out what they they're feeling from the event what they think of what's going on on stage and stuff we would we just want to capture as much as the atmosphere as we possibly can i look forward to it so we're going to have another short break and when we return russ is going to be back with his usual mix of what's happening through april skies and other bits and pieces as well so you'll be you'll be back in your um, comfort zone yeah back in the hot seat <laughs> hi i'm alan stern and i'm based at the southwest research institute's offices in boulder colorado but today i'm speaking to you from new horizons mission operations control center at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab in Laurel, Maryland. I'm the leader of NASA's Pluto New Horizons mission. I'm also an active suborbital researcher, and I'm a founder of space companies, including the Wingu, Worldview, and Golden Spike. I've been attending Yuri's Night parties since 07. I've also recorded videos for Yuri's Night several times, and I did a Google Hangout with Yuri's Night leaders in support of New Horizons. In fact, back in 2011, I did a Yuri's Night video for the 50th anniversary of human spaceflight. Yuri's Night celebrates the birth of human spaceflight and the first time any human left Earth's cradle for space. But it represents even more than that to me. It also represents the worldwide excitement about human spaceflight and the belief that spaceflight of all kinds will be a fundamental part of the future of human society. Celebrating Yuri's Night brings us together as a community and it gives us an opportunity to engage the public in just that kind of excitement about space exploration. So let's work to make sure that 50 years from today, Yuri's Night is celebrated by people living and working in locales across the solar system. Payecheli. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton. Yuri's Night is a special celebration of the remarkable achievement of man's space flight. Do yourself a favor, go to www.yurisnight.net and find a party near you. Join with like-minded people and celebrate this very remarkable accomplishment and let's set our sights on keeping this planet as safe and healthy as it possibly can be. Peace. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, 
a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, Ross, it's your turn to shine. What do you got for us? Well, at the moment, it's not going well. It's been this rain and cloud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've been out at all last month. Really? Come on, yeah, no, no, I don't think I have. I think I, I did a few events, but most of them kind of indoors talks and things like that. But let's hope for Yuri's night, Abe. Eh? It's going to be crystal clear. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Although my app on my phone is saying otherwise. Oops. <laughs> it's saying two weeks of gloom. Look. Well, it is April, isn't it? April showers. April showers, yeah. <laughs> These things happen. <laughs> So yeah, all over to me now. So as you know, this episode is a special for Yuri Gagarin, who was the first person in space. So I thought I might talk a little bit about our own atmosphere, the layers of our own Earth, because, you know, he had to travel through some of these to get to space. And uh, at what points in the atmosphere things happen that astronomers can see? And also, what height do you officially enter space? Where Where, where is it? Where, where does it stop and start? Well, to start off with, our atmosphere starts apparently at around five to nine miles. See, now now this is where I'm in trouble because those big words, <laughs> big words that you know me and you kind of sit and go, do you say it like that or should we say it like that? Apparently, yeah, five to nine miles is the troposphere and is the most dense. That's all I've got for that one. That's all it says that it is. So I'm guessing that's where all the oxygen is and, you know, all the stuff we breathe. Almost all the weather is in this region. So the five to nine miles is where all the weather is, all the clouds that I've been talking about. I hate them at the moment. I'm re- I've really, you know, I could go off on a ramp. I'm not going to. So for astronomy, as you can probably tell, a lot depends on atmosphere, or as we call it, atmospheric seeing, as opposed to the actual quality of the telescope you have. Because you can have the biggest and the best scope in the world, but if there's a lot of moisture in the air, fog, mist, clouds, heat, haze, even frost, can make your view bad. So it's not always about the telescope. It's about what's going on actually in this area. So really, as astronomers, we should move to a nice desert <laughs> on our own. One, because we're a bit weird and eccentric. But two, because that's where at night it's cold but dry, which is almost like the perfect conditions to keep the atmosphere kind of still. Even there, we're not safe because you've got jet streams that can get in the way. Jet streams consist of kind of ribbons of very strong winds that move weather systems around the globe. They're found at around five to ten miles above the surface of the Earth, and they can reach speeds up to 200 miles an hour. At a position of a jet stream, it's not always in the same place, because it varies, and it's within the natural fluctuations of the environment. It's caused by temperature differences between the sort of tropical air masses and polar air masses, so really hot and cold air. Mixing together can make it really turbulent up there and move them around. Sometimes they can go over us, sometimes they're out the way. So if they're there and above us, it makes the view very turbulent. So even if it looks like it was a good, nice, clear, cold night, you might have a jet stream overhead and it will ruin your view of Jupiter. So that's the area really that affects astronomers. If you get to 31 miles high, from that point to 31 miles high, you then has the, tr- the stratosphere. Uh, this is where the ozone layer is, which looks after us, as we know, because I think around like the 80s, 90s, we were really worried about it and we found out that we were actually destroying it using the sprays that we use and cars and things like that. I'm hoping it's starting to get better. I haven't actually looked into it. We know what's killing it. So hopefully we can now 
you know stop the damage yeah but what it does really the ozone layer it, it looks after us it absorbs and scatters the solar ultraviolet radiation from the sun so it's almost like a, a force field isn't it yeah it looks after us when I was at college, yep. one part of my course that I had to do was on public speaking, and uh, there was a point where we had to do a, a talk on a subject that we didn't pick ourselves. We were given mm. a subject to talk about, and mine was global warming. Ah. And I always remember, because you were talking about the different gases that we've been pumping out through sprays and things. Yep. And it will always remind me of that because there was two words that I had to remember parrot fashion because <laughs> I couldn't remember the words because they were complicated. And to yeah. this day, I still remember them because <laughs> you've got two types of gases that come out of those things. Yeah. Uh, and in polystyrene and the linings of fridges and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you've got CFCs, which is the gas yeah. that comes out of the cans which are chlorofluorocarbons and HCFCs or hydrochlorofluorocarbons. And I'll always remember those two for the rest of my life. I was going to say that. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to repeat them because I won't be able to. <laughs> yeah, so luckily we've tried to cut down on all that, haven't we? Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's made anymore, the CFCs, are they? They're no, kind of, we use... it was all about fridges and things like that. Yeah, they've stopped putting that, that stuff into the lines of fridges. Uh, we stopped yep. using the polystyrene for fast food containers. Yep. It's, you know, it's all in the... They're all yeah, yep. wrapped in the paper. We've avoided all that kind of stuff now. Now it's plastics at the moment. That's the big bugbear, isn't it? Everyone's trying to get rid of plastic straws. It's like we invent something. Think, yeah, this is great. But then we don't see that further down the line, it's actually harming something somewhere else that we're unaware of. Only concern with that is, okay, we're getting rid of plastic straws with these so-called paper straws. Yep. Now, if you put to put normal paper into a drink for a little while, it will just go <laughs> floppy. Now, this stuff doesn't go floppy. No. Nope. So what's in it <laughs> that's stopping it from doing that? I, I drink from the bottle, so I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a heathen. <laughs> so yeah, the ozone layer, about 31 miles high in the stratosphere, around there. From 30 miles to sort of 600 miles. This is called the ionosphere. And in that, it's all sort of like ions and bits and electrons that are all there. And it's kind of its own being, <laughs> its own layer. So yeah, the ionosphere is it's an abundant layer of electrons and ionized atoms and molecules that stretches overlapping into the mesosphere and the thermosphere. <laughs> These are great to say. And it's a very dynamic region because it actually grows and shrinks based on solar conditions. So depending on how the sun is hitting us, with solar flares and bits like that, it actually kind of like squeezes and opens, expands again, depending, looking after us, I'm guessing, just like the uh, ozone layer. The mesosphere starts just above the stratosphere <laughs> and extends 53 miles high. This is the area that I like as an astronomer because around here is when you see the meteors. Mm -hmm. They burn up in this layer and you also get the uh, noctilucent clouds form here. They're kind of a new thing. They've been there, but they didn't really know what they were. They're kind of like the clouds they're saying now are made up of uh, like meteorotic dust particles, which are then encased in ice crystals. So it's burnt up, this gas or dust has been given off, and then they've almost kind of like frozen into this, this part of the atmosphere and just kind of sits there. And it can be seen when the sun is below the horizon as it kind of like reflects up onto them. So they look kind of like silver blue wisps across the sky, mm -hmm. really wispy, almost like spider webby, I'd say, Yeah. all across the sky. And you think that's really cool because that's like 
bits of meteor you don't think that many you know meteors really burn up in the atmosphere but sometimes they can create whole clouds there yeah of all the stuff so i think that's for me as an astronomer that's really interesting i've not actually seen any but i have seen the guys post pictures from actually from milton Keynes where i am of it and i'm like oh man if i'd have got up early i might have seen it yeah so then from this area which i call the meteor area you then got the thermosphere which then goes from that up to 372 miles high we only live on like the tiny little crust compared to all the rest of the atmosphere that's around us. Yeah. And this point, the thermosphere, is where you get the aurora happen. And also it's where the satellites are that you see shooting across the sky. They occur in this layer and sort of flying through there. The aurora is actually caused by high energy particles that are up there. And it's from the sun. When it hits, it kind of like excites them. So it's like the ionosphere that we spoke about earlier. All the ions that are in that at this level interact with the sun. So that's what creates the lights. It excites them almost and they kind of glow. It's awesome green glow. So where does space begin? According to ESA and all the sort of NASA and that, there isn't actually a definite altitude where space actually begins. But they have created a line and I'm guessing it's called the Kármán line. It has got little dashes above the A's, so it might be said differently. But this line is at around 62 miles so we've just talked about how high our atmosphere goes but they're now saying that 62 miles above sea level is conventionally used as the official start of outer space in space treaties and for like aerospace record keeping and stuff like that mm -hmm. so if we look at yuri gagarin his flight lasted what about 108 minutes was it about that yeah yeah and it said including 89 minutes was when he was actually in space and he did one orbit of earth but he, he did say he traveled 17,000 miles an hour but he did reach speeds of is it 25 about something 25, like that yeah yeah so yeah. that might have been like as he was coming in or going around i don't know but saying it was around about 17,000 miles an hour which is roughly the same speed the iss yeah flies over as well which you can see so you think if you see the iss flying over it's almost the same sort of height and speed as gagarin was yeah so that's what you know he he would have looked like and the speed he was going across the sky when you see the iss and strangely you should say that for the 50th anniversary of yuri's flight there was a, a movie produced in conjunction with the european space agency and the crew of the international space station they actually took the audio from the mission control talking to yuri they worked out at each point where he would be over the earth yeah. And they actually filmed from the space station exactly where Yuri would have been at any one point during his flight. Oh, excellent. Uh, the movie is available on YouTube. It's also available on Blu-ray, DVD, the usual stuff. Mm. It's called First Orbit. It's worth checking out. It's, as I say, it's 108 minutes long-ish, so it's quite long. There's a lot of points where nothing is being said, but you can see yeah. what Yuri would have seen through his porthole. Yeah, the first man to actually see yeah. those things, the features and everything that, you know, we have no clue were there, really, yeah. or what you could see from space. Mm -hmm. His highest point was about 203 miles, is it? Yeah. Give or take about 200 miles over. Yeah. So you think about, as I said, the atmosphere is there. He's still kind of technically in the atmosphere, but it is in space. That's where they've said 63 miles, 62 miles is where it is. So he went 203. Mm -hmm. so he was well above that to then become the first person officially. You, you were talking to me earlier about that he actually had a bit of control himself, didn't he? Yeah, he did. It. 
Originally, the the powers that be, should I say, didn't want him to be in control of that spacecraft at any point. They were controlling it from Earth. Sergei Kurilov, who I mentioned earlier, he didn't think this was right, that somebody shouldn't have any control of what they were doing because the people on Earth can't see what's going on. Yeah. So he gave Yuri the passcodes to override the controls. He sort of sneaked it in his, <laughs> to him and said, look... Don't do any human error, but... <laughs> Just in case, there's the codes, you know. Do a, so. loop, do a loop the loop or something. Yeah. <laughs> so technically then, he actually did fly the spaceship himself yeah. around yeah. Earth. So he actually flew it, not only went up, he flew it as well. So that's, that's Yuri Gagarin about that height. Now, there is, above this point, there is actually still more of our atmosphere. It's called the exosphere. And that goes from the last one up to sort of 6,200 miles. Wow. Or it's 6,200 miles wide altogether. And that is pretty much nearly the size of the Earth itself. So you've almost got the Earth and then the Earth again in the atmosphere. So the Earth could technically be twice the size it actually is, if you include that as part of it. And then from that point, it is actually officially called outer space. <laughs> yeah, so that's where we then get to see all the cool stuff in our universe from outer space onwards under the right atmospheric conditions, of course you should be able to see the things that are coming up now, which is going to talk about what can we see this month. So Gagarin would have got a better view because he would have been in space. And if he had taken a telescope with him, if it wasn't too rickety, he might have been able to see some cool stuff. Well, the planets are coming at last. There are some planets actually starting to come up. We've talked to the last few months, you can see uh, Venus and Mercury about. They're still about. Venus is still up at the moment. But Jupiter, Saturn and Mars are starting to creep in. So Jupiter rises at about 11 p.m. So it's a good one to see. It's the highest one at the moment of the three, as we're kind of, we're just passing Jupiter. So we're just literally coming right up to it. And then we're going to start going past. So it's a really good time to have a look. It is still quite low though. We're not looking through the best, you know, area to see, but it's still close. You can see it and it'll be at opposition next month, which means it'll be brighter and slightly bigger. It'll be really good to look at. Saturn rises at about 3 a.m. So you've got a bit of a wait until that happens. But there are loads of things that I'll talk about you can see whilst you're waiting. Quite low in the sky, but we are actually coming up to Saturn now. We're going, we're going to go past Jupiter and start heading towards Saturn and catching up at last with Mars. Mars rises at 3.20 a.m., so only 20 minutes after Saturn. It's lower still, but it will be increasing in size as we catch up to it in our orbit. So they should start getting some really good views now of its features in the next coming months, hopefully. On the 15th, if we look at Jupiter, as it's coming into opposition, it should be good to look at. Opposition pretty much just means that we're getting closer to it in orbit. So it just looks slightly brighter and slightly bigger. So it isn't really, it doesn't change. It's, it's where we are and what we're doing as a, as a planet. So it'll be up in the sky as you are awake for work. And if you look at your window, as long as you're kind of looking east to west, you should see it up there quite nice and bright while you're making a coffee. Have a little look, you'll see Jupiter there. If you're up ridiculously early with your telescope or you've got a steady hand, you will be able to see on this day its red spot. Together with the moon Io, its shadow will be on the planet with a great spot again. So it's another chance to see it. I know we think we could have uh, seen it maybe last month as well. It happens around about 4am. So you will have to get up ridiculously early, but to see a moon's shadow on a planet and a great red spot, it's worth it. It's worth the pain. Just have a coffee, you'll be fine. And then on the 17th, you'll have a very thin crescent moon and it'll be below a very bright Venus. Just as the sun sets, 
Venus is high and bright all this month. It's a really easy planet to spot. If you've not seen Earth's deadly twin yet, it will be there just as the sun sets. It's, you, you can't miss it at all. Mercury now, unfortunately, has skipped around the other side of the sun, so it's not there anymore because it moves really quickly, about 88 days. And the reason it's called Earth's deadly twin is Venus is actually pretty much around the same size as our planet, but it's completely inhospitable for life. Yeah. It's got, as we know, it's got a really thick atmosphere and the average temperature is about 464 degrees Celsius. I say about, but that's very exact wasn't it <laughs> and i always say that's around gas mark 16 so that people can understand the actual real temperature of it so that's a, you know it's like it's hotter than your ovens and it's a planet it's crazy mm -hmm. so yeah you can see that there and that's why it's so bright so again the crescent moon will be near it so it'd be quite a cool contrast it'd be quite thin to see the next day on the 18th if you couldn't see it on the 17th venus is hopefully fully shining bright again in the evening sky as long as the cloud isn't in the way and just below the naked eye group of the stars which is called the Pleiades or Seven Sisters they'd be kind of just above it so you can kind of see both of them together accompanied by a very thin crescent moon again so you have a couple of days where you'll be able to see Venus and moon and this little bright group of stars so you can see all of that so you can see the planet the moon and stars which are millions of miles away all in one sky the early morning of the 19th so really you you're going to need a few coffees to get through these three days, <laughs> 17th, 18th and 19th. On the 19th, Jupiter's moon Ganymede at around 2am will actually move into the planet's shadow. So it will seem to sort of disappear in the sky for no reason. And it's actually the shadow of Jupiter, which I think is brilliant. I love things like that. To actually see the moon just slip behind the actual and get covered in, in, a, in a shadow. And it will emerge again, only to then slip behind the planet itself, kind of grazing, I think, the bottom or the top, depending on what scope you have, because some scopes flip them upside down. So it will do that. It will disappear, come back, then go behind the planet. So that's, that's quite a cool thing to see. The moon Callisto is also nearby, and we're passing kind of underneath, almost with it. So together, it'll look really good and quite contrasting. If we move on to the 22nd, there's something cool to see on our moon. And this is going to be the uh, object of the month. I'm going to stick it on the uh, website for you. If you look at the moon on the 22nd, there's a sort of phenomenon that happens. You can see the lunar X and V. And it's where pretty much the Terminator... I'll be back. Which is, as I always say, not the killer robot. It's actually the shadow on the moon. As that crosses the moon, it just happens to be on this day just the right place for this strange phenomenon to happen. The light grazes and hits a couple of craters and ridges. And it's just at the right point that night to actually make an X and a V. I think the X is at the, it's sort of in the middle and then the V is just below on the moon. So if you pop on the website www.ukastronomy.org and have a look at events and then objects of the month, obviously the link to this podcast will be there as well with TGP's picture because then you can click on that and as I'm speaking and talking about it, you can have a look actually visually on there to see what it will look like and then run out and actually see it. So yeah, that's quite a cool thing to see. It's a little bit strange and if you can get a picture of it using your phone, put it on a Facebook group, say that you saw it let me know it'd be great while you're out there on the 22nd to the 23rd there is a meteor shower it's a lesser one it's not really well known it's called the lyrid meteor shower and it peaks both these nights they radiate roughly from the bright star vega which is a big blue giant sort of star it's quite a bright one so you can't miss it uh, it's in the constellation of lyra which is a harp they do only peak at around 10 an hour but while you're there there's something cool that you can see in this uh, constellation and it's called the ring nebula i'll also add it to the uh, object of the month for the visual guide on the website to find it the constellation lyra is pretty much it's like a diamond four stars in a diamond shape 
with the star vega kind of attached to it and a, just a line to it if you look in between the bottom two stars of the constellations so the two stars furthest from vega with binoculars or a scope you may see in between them what looks almost like a polo mint in space and it may have a blue sort of green tint to it and what you're actually seeing is the death of a, a sun-like star it was called a planetary nebula because they used to think that it was actually a ball of gas that created planets it was first coined this by william herschel who uh, had recently discovered the planet uranus i'll say it that way which uh, funnily enough has a blue green tint so he thought that the new objects that he was seeing out in the sky like that resembled the gas giant and maybe they are what you know clumped together to create them in a way he was right because the heavier elements in our bodies the jewelry we wear the cars we drive were all created in these stars and then thrown across the galaxy upon their deaths and are now a part of us which you know and a part of the planet so they do kind of create planets so technically it could be right this dead star it pretty much swelled up into a red giant expanded out and then as it burnt through all its fuel it, it collapsed and the outer layers were then ejected in a shell of gas, which is what you can see. It will last for a few tens of thousands of years before then spreading out into the vastness of space and eventually disappearing. So one day it won't be there. And if you search on the internet, you can actually see NASA have got a fantastic picture of it in all color. It's amazing. And there's a very small sort of white core there, a dot, and it's a white dwarf. And then all the heat and the light that's been given off pretty much illuminates all these layers in sort of like a dazzling blue-green display, which is really, really cool. So what you're looking at there is you're seeing all this gas being thrown off by this dead star, and that's you're seeing what's going to happen to our star eventually. So that's why we need to get off this planet. <laughs> got a few, few billion years yet. But yeah, while you're there, you can have a look at a dying star, the star Vega as well. Why not have a look there? And then you've got the meteor shower. Now, did I see there was an event, wasn't there? Did you post it up? About the uh, the Letchworth and District Astronomical Society. It's on that night, isn't it, I think? Yeah. It is on our Facebook group, if I have a peek on there to find out. But yeah, I think they, it's our local one, sort of Milton Keynes area, Letchworth, was it, did you say? Yeah. They're having an actual stargazing night where hopefully we'll show you this stuff and you'll be able to actually look out and see if you can see the meteorites as well. So if you can get involved in that, go for it, go and learn the last thing on the 30th this is something kind of for the experts because there is a comet that's up and it's called 2016 r2 pan stars always catchy names for comets we know this and it's moving from the constellation perseus across up to the constellation auriga which you should know about because it was the object of the month for the last podcast which i hope you all listen to <laughs> so it's moving up there CCD images are actually picking out this amazing blue ion tail which is being spread across the sky as the comet is heading up towards the sky Capella which is in Auriga the main star goat star although it's quite faint to see naturally it is a good challenge for those budding astrophotographers if you want to go out and try and image something this apparently this is a really good comet to actually get you know a nice tail on there are some pictures i think in some magazines of it that people are getting and it does look really cool uk astronomy have actually been donated a planetary camera not not so good for comets it's for our 16 inch dobsonian the robotic crazy big thing that i've got in the garage <laughs> and takes two people to wheel out <laughs> try and write the wife into doing that but she's never <laughs> happy about that <laughs> so i hope to get out these next few months if the clouds go and uh, actually get some lessons from our resident astrophotographer Mick Scott who's also a good friend of mine and a, a very good builder 
I have to throw him, who was taught a thing or two by an amazing guy called Gary Palmer, who actually is a proper top-notch astrophotographer. He's actually, I think he went to Wales to meet him and actually had a whole day learning about how to do it all. So I'm hoping, I've never done anything astrophotography. I've only ever used my iPhone. So watch this space, because <laughs> I'll be going from an iPhone to the actual proper stuff. And I'm sure I'm going to find lots of tips, tricks, and annoyances along the way. But hopefully I can then share that with you guys as we close in on Jupiter and Saturn and Mars in the next couple of months. So I'm actually kind of now going into the astrophotography, which I'm slightly scared about because <laughs> I'm not very uh, computer aware, shall we say. So yeah, this is looking quite cool up there. Meteor showers, dead stars, and uh, some events, hopefully. Yuri's night, 12th, we'll be doing stargazing. Excellent. Well, I hope it goes on really well with your stargazing event, and hopefully we'll have a little bit of a report back about it. Yeah, well, even if it's cloudy, I'll be out. You know me. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com Well guys, thanks for helping me make this special episode happen. I've never been a co-host before, so it was good fun for me. Hey, ain't no problem on my end. I'd also like to thank Alexander Milas and Charlotte Haverley for coming on board, Ben Pester from Pester PR for a liaising with us, Steve Dix from Liquid Management for the use of the public service broadcasting Gagarin track as our Yuri's Night theme, if you haven't heard the Race for Space album, go check it out. And thanks to everyone listening to the show. Take care, one and all, and don't forget to rock, rock the, the planet. planet. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. If you want to get in touch with us, then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or click on the social media icons on the top left of the page at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Just got it. This is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.